Ah, <laughs> uh, that's the sound of blackness and uh yeah, hold on. Change is coming and we are so excited to have Colette Winlock on the air to talk to us about some strategies um that we can use to hang on, you know. Hanging on is not as easy as listening to a good song, right? We need some strategies. So <laughs> um thanks to um the Black Women's Media and Wellness Project, um, there's a magazine called Crossing the Invisible Line 3, Overcoming Depression, with some wonderful tools about how to hold on and, you know, make that change, be that change that you're hoping for. So good morning, Colette. Thank you so much for joining us and to share this wonderful tool as well as other things that are going on at the Health and Human Resource Education Center where you are the executive director well, thank you, Wanda. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about the uh, the magazine and some of the things that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. So I'm going to finish reading your bio. Uh, you are a published author. You have one novel, Undoing Crazy, which is published by Oaktown Press. Uh, you have a manuscript currently at the copy editing stage, and for 10 years you provided consultant services for diversity training, applied research projects, and curriculum development with the RAND Corporation, Stanford Athletic Department, various counties in California, uh, Texaco, Kaiser, and numerous community-based organizations. And for the past 10 years to the present, you've been the executive director, as we mentioned, um, for an Oakland-based nonprofit providing mental health services. You've held director positions at the Bay Area Black United Fund and the National Black Alcoholism Council, California chapter. In the 90s, you were part of a spiritual-based healing and leadership group named the Self-Affirming Soul Healing Africans, Sasha. And with Sasha, uh, you all carried out groundbreaking work on healing the historic impact of racism on the black body and our communities. Wow, let's let that sink in for a minute. Uh, <laughs> uh, is Sasha still around? You know, it it's not. Um, four of us ended up going into a Ph.D. program, and so after oh. 10 years we, we had to, um, you know, kind of stop doing it. But um, one of our um, participants, Dr. Chuck Johns, she did her dissertation on the work that we did with Sasha. Oh, nice. Nice. Oh, you have to let me put me in touch with her so I can read that. Sounds great. Sounds really great. Yeah. And your undergraduate degree is in uh, kinesiology, and graduate degree, your graduate degree is in cultural anthropology and social transformation. Oh, that's why you're so good (laughs) at what you do. Besides all the practical stuff, you know, you got scholarship in that area. (laughs) (laughs) That's quite a combination for sure. Definitely. You are in two sports hall of fames and a women's commission hall of fame. So what are your sports hall of fame fame um you know, accolades? Wow. Well, back in the eighties I was running um track for Cal State Hayward, you know, that's known as Cal State East Bay now. And um yeah. I was put in their Hall of Fame for track and field and same for the um Sacramento Hall of Fame. Well actually Rancho Cordova Hall of Fame. Mhm. Oh, okay. So what? So what are your numbers? What are my numbers? 
Yeah, like, you know, I did a blah, blah, blah in the, I don't know if you were um, long distance track and field or oh, short. Oh yeah. Yeah. So what well, you record know, um, did you break? I was, <laughs> well, I, <laughs> well, I was a sprinter and a hurdler. Um, I was put in the oh, Hall wow. of Fame for the 400-meter hurdles. And at one time I had third ranking actually in the United States for my 400-meter hurdle time. And um, so I ran with some pretty incredible people, and I ran with the Los Angeles Mercurettes, um, Mm -hmm. Berkeley Track Club. And so that running was a big part of my life. I ran up until I was about 37. Hmm. Nice. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I liked running when I was in um, middle school. But, wow, that's great. Oh, that's really wonderful. Hmm. It seems, Again, it seems you know, like another lifetime, and, but I, you know, I, I found that you know the, the the whole skill of practicing every day and trying mm-hmm. to you know get to your personal best. It's it's something that's carried over you know into my work into my life today. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. Because I know a part of um, you know, HHREC is you know um, physical health, like you know, getting people into a practice of of exercise and showing the connection between, you know, movement and wellness. Exactly. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah and, and you also write in your bio that your parents are, are deceased and your father was born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and he uh, he was a veteran. Um, and your mother was born in East Los Angeles, and she was a housewife and later a campus supervisor. And you were born in Sacramento and grew up in Alaska and Charleston, South Carolina. Wow, what a breath well, my, there. Well, my, <laughs> yeah, my dad was in the Air Force, and, you know, oh, we grew up as uh, military dependents. And so about every four years you you travel and you move somewhere. And, you know, going from Alaska to Charleston, South Carolina, cause we were in Charleston in the, um, the early 60s. And so it was right at the beginning of the um, the civil rights movement, uh, you know. Um, and so that that was quite an experience of living, you know, in a segregated world at that time. Mhm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Has that shown up in your writing in any way? No, I believe so. I believe so. I think that in Charleston, because of the segregation, you know, I never really understood, like, what what is this? Because I was a child at the time. Um, and so didn't understand, you know, why there was so much hatred towards, you know, us as, as black people. Um, one of the good experiences that I did have was that in Charleston, we lived on, uh, lived in a place called Eight Mile Road. And I've come to learn later in my adult life that we were living amongst the gold people. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I think, yeah. but you know, I really think that one of the positive things that came out of that is that, you know, we went to all black schools, you know, pretty much, you know, segregated into the black community. And so mm-hmm. there was just a, um, wow, just a profound appreciation for what we what we can accomplish as black folks. And I know that has carried me, you know, throughout all the work. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Wow, wow. And and so um, your father was born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, 
And so you have family uh, or you had family in Alabama as well. Did you ever visit Alabama? We did. You know, we drove across country from Alaska to Charleston. And then, uh, of course, we stopped in Alabama. And um, Mm -hmm. then on our way back, we we stopped in Alabama again. And, you know, my my dad's um, father, he was a business owner. And so he owned an automotive repair shop. And a lot of his, uh, my uncles and, and aunts went to, you know, all black schools and graduated from Temple University. So just a rich experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds really, really rich. Oh, nice, nice. And um, and you and you you mentioned that you know your brothers and sisters are an important part and an integral to your life. And you're number six of eight children. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We always had our our built-in playmates, and you know when you travel <laughs> a lot, you're always meeting new people, but. You know, my brothers and sisters were always my best friends. Mhm. That's really beautiful, and and I really like the story you told me um, about how you and your brother raised, um, I think your nephew, I think. Mhm. Yes. Yeah, that's a really beautiful story as well. You know, um, you know, stepping in as parents for your nephew. And the way you all yeah. sort of uh, divided the labor. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is true, and and you know they're they're united now as adults, and everything is going well, and I'm you know just glad during that time we were able to. Mhm. Yeah, that is a blessing. Yeah, when when family sort of you know sort of wraps his arms around each other, and you know when when you know when someone needs support, you know, you know the person is not that needs help is not taken out of the family. And, you know, um, and turn over to strangers, which happens, you know, a lot, you know, in these various systems that we have, you know, the government systems, which are not compassionate necessarily. Oh, I doubt it. And, and it can contribute so much to the trauma that we see mm-hmm. in our, you know, our young adults and, and even, you know, older adults to this day. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So... You opened, um, you know, this this wonderful, um, you know, magazine, Crossing the Invisible Line 3, which makes me think, was there a a two and a one? I know, I think it was 10 years between the last um, publication and this current one, um, and uh, Crossing the Invisible Line 3, Overcoming Depression. And so I was wondering if you could maybe just sort of give us maybe the, um, you know, the context for, for the magazine and and also and also let people know how they can get copies of it. Oh, certainly. You know, it's um it's interesting how this started out, um, because I would say it was almost twenty years ago that the um mm-hmm. Alameda County Public Health Department <clears throat> had asked the uh, Black Women's Media Project to do um a report on how alcohol problems were impacting <clears throat> African American women and um and so we thought to ourselves, and when I say we, it was Kiara Harris and um, Sheila James and myself that that did the very first Crossing the Invisible Line. And what we were thinking at the time is nobody's going to read a report. And we really felt that, you know, a white page report that gets put on the shelf. And we really felt that the information that we got, because we conducted a series of um, focus groups to get the information 
And so in our own creativity, we said, well, let's turn it into a magazine. And let's let the magazine resemble Jet magazine. Because we know that Jet, you know, is something that, um, you know, our community has has read and used for a long time. And so the very first crossing the invisible line is actually a, um, a summation of a report that was done and given to Alameda County. Um, and it was so well received. I mean, we, I think we distributed almost 30,000 copies. And, mm-hmm. um, and then, and the first one, you know, very much just focused on alcohol problems, the, you know, the proliferation of liquor stores in our community, um, and just a variety of, of things that people were being impacted by. Um, and so then the second one, we decided to focus on codependency and how um, alcohol problems were affecting the black community in terms of uh, many folks being adult children of alcoholics. And we were blessed to have Laura Hayes, you know, Oakland's own comedian, that um, was a featured, um, yeah, she was a featured article at that time. And um, so, yeah, so all told with that one, we distributed about 20,000. So the whole notion that the idea of crossing the invisible line is really about us stepping away from what's taboo to talk about. And it's like, we know that there's an issue here, but nobody's going to talk about it. And so that's where the theme of crossing the invisible line came from. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's it's really, really, um, uh, really well done. And, and what I really like are, you know, the personal stories, um, you know, you have, have, you know, some experts, you know, sort of giving some context about, the superwoman syndrome and what it is mm-hmm. um and and how a lot of you know sort of what what shows up as depression um is a, an accumulation of of traumas that sort of travel with us as our as we adapted you know psychologically and spiritually to this environment mm-hmm. which is really um unhealthy for for people of african descent um and in this case, we're talking about women, and 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 women focusing on women is something that's not always, you know, keyed key in in all of these discussions. You know, we're looking at black men, and certainly black mm-hmm. men, you know, have you know have a lot of a lot of challenges. But then so do black women, <laughs> and and so because exactly. of the charge, you know, and the direction of your organization, you know, women are like really key. Um, to, you know, sort of the programming and what happens, you know, there, you know, at that wonderful center. And maybe you can give the address. So I want you to talk a little bit about, uh, after you give the address, about, you know, um, I really want to talk about um, what what are uh, telem is it telomeres? Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, telomeres. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, telomeres, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and, and Dr., um, Brenda Wade's, you know, section, and then, you know, talk about the superwoman syndrome and anything else you'd like to talk about, <laughs> yeah, you know, sort of teasing uh, this, our audience, like, oh, you really have to get this and, and, and read it and pass it on because this is the kind of information you want to share and have, like, family discussions. And I think there might be a way for people to plug in to services because you have lots of groups and activities for people to, like, you know, tie you know, sort of 
have a community because a lot of times people feel isolated. But you know, at, at HHREC, you know, people can step into community and be a part of the organization, uh, which is about wellness, community wellness, individual wellness. Yeah. Well, we're located at 1905 San Pablo Avenue. And that's in Oakland, uh, 94612. And I always like to tell people, if you know where the Greyhound bus station is in Oakland, we're just a block up from there. And um, and you're right, the, the, the center that we have, we really try to promote community connections. Um, it's been shown, you know, that people not being isolated, not feeling um, alone is part of one of those strategies to help us with our mental health. And so we've got like three things that we think are important is that, you know, we provide people opportunities for leadership. The act of giving back to others is a way of helping ourselves. And so we um, always try to look at to see how the community can get involved in leadership activities. Um, Another tenet is that we promote radical self-care. Self-care is something that's becoming really more prevalent in our community now where we can, you know, actually talk about self-care without feeling like we're being selfish or we're not, you know, taking care of other people. And and sometimes um, self-care is something that we've got to learn. You know, we've got to learn, well, what does that look like? What are the activities? And then like the, the other tenet that's important is that we look at cultivating connections. Um, sometimes connections just don't happen easily. And so what is it what is that process that involved that you're involved in on making a meaningful connection with someone? So we use a lot of groups, you know, sacred space meets at our um our center once a month and actually yesterday, uh, Reverend E, she was our guest. Uh-huh. And Nice. Yeah, yeah, and it was a very it was just a, a an amazing group that was held yesterday. Um, we had a young woman who we hadn't seen for a few months, and she showed up yesterday, and and she was talking about how she felt so alone and isolated, and um, and the group was able to provide her comfort, you know. Um, some of the older women handed out cards to to her so that she could stay in touch. Um, the magazine, Crossing the Invisible Line 3, was actually, um, we had a major contribution from our um, sister-to-sister peer support group. And so many of the, the women that you see in the magazine are participating in that sister-to-sister group. And they um, you know, they went through a series of focus groups that allowed us to, to, to get the stories that are inside of the, the magazine, the um the Black Women's Media Project at Community Advisory Board, and that's a group that helps us with the uh, Beastville Retreat. They also contributed a lot. And um, when you talk about Dr. Brenda Wade, oh my gosh, she has been <laughs> a pioneer. <laughs> she has been a pioneer for I don't know how long in terms of Black women's mental health, and and not just Black women's mental health, but you know all of our uh, mental health men, women, children, you know, youth. And so, in the article, she talked about the agitated depression. Um, I mean, we've all heard that whole kind of stereotype that black women are just mad, we're just angry. And so she she breaks it down. 
about what does depression look like when you do have unresolved issues that are coming from the environment, whether it's oppression, racism, not feeling supported. Um, and so she talks about how this continued depression um, impacts us. Um, and I'm not, I'm not a scientist that knows all about the telomeres. But um, telomeres are little fibers, and they're at the end of uh, our genetic strands. And so in the, in the magazine, Dr. Wade talks about how this agitated depression, how this unresolved depression is actually shortening our telomere strands and ultimately uh, shortening our lifespan. And so I just found that just really fascinating. And so she does talk about some of the studies about how we can heal telomeres. And that's what I like about Dr. Wade. Dr. Wade doesn't necessarily romance the problem, you know, meaning that, oh, let me describe the problem to infant, you know, till, till we can't describe it no more. She's very focused on, okay, what are some of our solutions and what's going to help lengthen our telomeres? Um, and one of the things that I like about how she approaches it is that it's the solutions are accessible to all of us. You know, things like eating a balanced diet, you know, um, looking at fruits and vegetables, um, you know, looking at paying attention to what your body needs for fuel. And see, some of the things that are the solutions to overcoming depression are really some lifestyle choices. <clears throat> now, there is clinical depression, which is a much deeper depression that oftentimes, you know, um, in therapy, maybe the individual might need to have medication. But the majority of the depressive episodes that we have can be solved through some, some changes in our lifestyle. Um, many of us, uh, when I hear a woman, you know, is feeling depressed, you know, or feeling down, I always check in to see, well, What's your water intake? Because a lot of times, dehydration will mimic depression. And really? begin to, yeah, yeah, there's lots of research out about that, um, about um, how dehydration not only can mimic depression, but it can cause headaches. Um, it can cause just a, a variety of ways that we don't feel well in our bodies. And when you're not feeling well in your body, you can then begin to start falling into what looks like depression um, symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, the, yeah, it, it's really fascinating when you start looking mm-hmm. at all the ways that depression shows up. Um, you know, for us, and for us, you know, complex trauma is another um is another concern, you know, in terms of um, looking at what's happened, you know, throughout our life. Um, and, and the change in looking at trauma, where it used to be people would say, um, so what's wrong with you? You know, what have you done wrong? That kind of thing. What are you not doing? And what's changed in terms of looking at complex trauma is the question now is, what happened? What happened to you? and allowing people to then tell their story without interruption, without judgment, but just have that ability to say, hey, this is what happened. And that that is something, it's a little, you know, it's, it's a small shift, but it's a big result in, in how someone feels about addressing the trauma that, that 
they've experienced in their life. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that um, I think it was in um, Dr. Wade's um, sort of what we can do to sort of help. Um, wow. So make sure you have you're drinking enough water. Certainly. Um, mm-hmm. But another thing she mentioned was, um, you know, making sure that you're getting. Or maybe that was another place I saw. Make sure that you're getting enough sunshine. Oh, exactly. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a big yeah. piece, too. You know, getting outside, mm-hmm. soaking up the sun. Um, most most people are deficient in vitamin D. If you're not mm-hmm. getting enough um, if you're not getting enough sunshine, then it's okay. Take a supplement. Take a supplement. You know, it's all right to, to take a daily dose of um, vitamin D. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting to me. Um, I actually became deficient in vitamin D when I was writing my first book, and that was because I'd go to work, and then I'd come home, and I'd be inside. You know, I'd be inside all day, and um, I began to start feeling some foggy brainness. And I remember I went to you know to Kaiser and did my little physical, and turned out that I was so deficient in vitamin D, and that's what was causing it. So they put me on a regimen. And ever since then, you know, I've, I've, I um, definitely pay attention to either I'm getting sunshine or I make sure I take that vitamin D every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to share um, something from um, one of the uh, the contributors to the um, uh, to the magazine? Um, I really like the section. Um, what what one thing I really like about Dr. Wade is how. She uses her life as an example, and uh, mm-hmm. and and so in in this in this uh, interview, she um, um, she talks about you know her own mother, and uh, and you know and and uh, you know when she was uh, you know in school, um, and she took a mm-hmm. psychology class, and um, and she talked about how you know. Sometimes when people think about depression, they think about people that are not functional. And uh, and I always like the kid um, with my, I don't know, is it with my students or with my family, I would always say, well, um, you know, I'm, I'm functioning. You know, I mean, I, I think I'm crazy, and, but I, I can function. <laughs> Um, and uh, and I, I say that with a laugh, and um, but then I'm kind of serious too because I think about, you know, all that we have to manage as black women, and and I think about what I was managing as, uh, you know, a single single mm-hmm. mother of two, you know, and mm-hmm. a divorcee who who wasn't getting along really well with, you know, my extended family, you know, the stepmother and the ex husband and all of that stuff and and the other children you know that are now part of our our blended family and and you know I saw models of where this was all working out where people had meetings for the blended family and everything was groovy and but it wasn't happening mm-hmm. on my front but I, I I saw how it could work <laughs> yeah yeah and and so when she talks about you know agitated depression you know she talks about her mother you know, she got up every day, I'm quoting, uh, reading from the magazine, page 12, and went to work. She had seven children. She functioned, but she was angry all the time. 
um, mm-hmm. agitated mm-hmm. depression, she writes, is what we see most often in black women. Most of us don't have the luxury of staying in bed. My mom couldn't stay in bed, so she would lash out. She'd scream and yell. She'd fly off the handle. She'd hit us, not hit us, beat us. We would have mm-hmm. welts and bruises everywhere. Yeah, and, and, and she said that is passed on. Everybody says there's genetic transmission. There are genes that will resequence if you're exposed to trauma instead of creating mm-hmm. a new sequence. And uh, she says, uh, I still continue to be keenly interested in depression because I know in our community we have good reasons to be depressed. There's a reason. Depression is not random and is not genetic. It's situational. It's like, that's important. It's situational. If you're in a circumstance where you live with continuing anxiety, continuing microaggressions, macroaggressions, whatever kind of aggression because we live in black bodies and because we are women. Yeah. So it's like, sometimes people blame themselves, right? It's like, no. You didn't create the world that you are situated in. Yeah. Right. And she also talks about how depression came with us to America. That's right. Mm -hmm. During the time of enslavement, I mean, oh, just the amount of aggression that our people went through and then not Mm -hmm. having the ability to 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 process it out. I mean it's like like in the uh, magazine, she talks about, uh, Bryn, Dr. Brenda Wade says, well, Masa, I don't feel like getting up today and going not to take none of this here talk. It's like, no, that yeah. was not options that were, you know, provided to us. And so there is a way that um, how we have dealt with trauma has been passed down, you know, intergenerationally. And many of uh, the results have been is that there's just this low-grade funk exist, you know, within our, our community. And one of the things that I like about crossing the invisible line is that we're looking at how do we change the cultural view of what it means to get mental health support. Um, you know, depression, you know, women who are depressed, they can be looked at, you know, as, you know, consistently angry, lazy, just not knowing how to deal, you know, not to handle things. And, you know, we've got that whole thing that we talk about, you know, never let them see him, see him sweat or, or saying we might say, don't worry, I got this, I got this. And oftentimes mm-hmm. we don't. And taking away that whole stigma um, that it's okay to say, you know what, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure how I'm handling this. And making that more of a supportive um, conversation than, you know, pushing away the support. Because oftentimes we can, we can push away the support that's right there because we don't want to reveal that we're just not handling the world right, you know, in a way that that um, makes us feel like we're, we're managing our lives. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, what I really like um, with some of the stories that the young women told um, mm-hmm. You know, they were sharing, you know, how it showed up in their life, and that that's a, a brave situation to describe how you were feeling, and then to go next to say, well, this is what I did about it. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's the story that we need to continue to create space in whatever groups or individuals, couples, is to hear the story and then allow that person to begin to also talk about, well, hey, this is what I'm going to be doing and this is how you can support me. Um, the book also has a, um, a section that talks about silence you know, mm-hmm. and, and what it means to 
to keep our business in the house, you know, and that right. if your mother, your grandmother, you know, heard about you running around telling the family's business that you would be in big trouble. And um, so, so we've got some cultural norms that we've got to break in order to move into making um, our mental health, you know, a, a very positive thing. I think it's a strength to seek help when you're starting to feel in a way that your mental health has been impacted, not only by the environment, but the situation that you're in. And I mm-hmm. do believe that there is a movement afoot, you know, um, and there is a movement afoot because there are more black people participating in therapy in the last five years. Um, there are, um, you're familiar with the black women's health project and they are, have an initiative called the sisters mobilizing mentally. And so oh, they've been, wow, that sounds to, nice. Yeah, yeah, it's very it's a it's a very powerful movement and actually they will be doing the next cohort here in Oakland. Um and this Saturday they have a um orientation oh. for women that might be interested in joining that cohort. Mhm. And oh, if someone okay. wants well, to mobilizing Yes, sisters mobilizing mentally. Mentally. Oh, okay. Yeah, um do you do you have the information about where it, are they collaborating with you all? You know, we will be collaborating with them. We've been in touch with them. Uh, I'm I do believe they're going to be um, holding their cohort sessions at at our center. So we're still okay. finalizing the details of that. But I'm sorry, I don't have it on me right at this moment. Um, but if okay. someone wanted to call five one zero eight three four five nine nine zero and ask for Yvonne Murphy. She's the program manager for the Black Women's Media and Wellness Project. She could provide that information. Mhm. Yeah, 'cause you said you said this weekend? Did you say this weekend? Yeah, somehow we bumped heads because we're um we're holding the Be Still retreat at Preservation Park this Saturday. And it's you are. preservation. We are you, yes. You mean um you mean tomorrow? I mean, I, yeah. Tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, tomorrow. I didn't even know about it. This is this is oh. the quarterly be still. Oh, I didn't even know about it. Oh my goodness. Oh. Wow. Well, we'll have to well, make I'm sure glad. that you're getting that information. <laughs> oh wow. So be still is this weekend. Um, what time is it? Is it nine to ten is the walk, and then ten is when it starts. Um, what are the details on be still? Okay. Yeah, so it's happening at Preservation Park. Nine o'clock. There's a uh, mindful mindfulness walk that's going to be led by Oakland's um, Girl Trap. And then at ten oh, really? o'clock, we okay. be. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I want to give a really great shout out to them because they are just doing amazing things across the country on getting black mm-hmm. women out and walking. And walking is another one of those solutions, you know, to helping uh, with uh, you know symptoms of depression. Um, and we're focused on crossing the invisible line. Um, that's the theme for tomorrow. And you okay. know, about what does it mean speaking up, um, eliminating stigma. Our dynamic woman will be um, Queen Reverend. Uh, uh, I always forget Matima Amani. You familiar with Matima? No, I. Uh-uh. Okay, well, she'll be our dynamic woman speaker, and we're trying something new this um, this retreat. We have we're going to be offering 
was called Trap Yoga. And oh, mm-hmm. I'm look, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's it's young. It's being led by a young uh, Oakland woman. Um, she calls herself mm-hmm. Trap Bay, and so she'll be leading the yoga. Um, we'll still have Soul Chi that's offered by Malik Atkins and um, mm-hmm. and Doctor, you know, Frank Staggers will be talking and educating people about deep relaxation. Mm-hmm. And we um, and um, yeah, yeah. So it's going to be a great day. And even yeah, though it's going to be really great. Yeah. Nice. So you mentioned, um, I'm trying to make sure I, I hear correctly, so you said trap yoga or track? What's trap. the name of the yoga? T-R-A-P? Trap. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. and, what is uh, that? Well, I'm going to find out myself. I mean, we, we're we looking at trying to, well, you know, Be Still has been going on for about 12 years, and we're, and we're really looking at how to create some activities that are intergenerational. And so mm-hmm. this trap yoga is something that a lot of young black women, you know, are um, attracted to, something that they like to do. And so we're just going to see how we can blend, you know, um, when the various generations, because be still, um, it attracts women probably 40 and up. And mm-hmm. we're trying to see if we can reach into that 20 and 30 year um, age group. So so mm-hmm. we'll be offering simultaneously. I mean, if trap yoga is too much for what the, um, the elders or the older women want to do, we're also offering a gentle uh, stretching room so that they can, you know, also participate in a way that feels good to them. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. This is great. And so Be Still is happening the same time that the Sisters Mobilizing Mentally is having its, um, uh, I guess, orientation? Yes, yes. And, okay. And, yeah. you know, the thing that I want to say is, you know, if people are in a um, – Be Still is offered every three, four months. So if you're interested in the sisters mobilizing mentally, I would say go to the orientation, you know, so you can find out more about that. So, you know, our community is, I believe we can support a number of things happening at the same time. And so I um, just want to, you know, give that shout out that if you are interested in sisters mobilizing, mobilizing mentally, I would go there. Be still will happen again in May. Okay. Yeah, like... Right, yeah. Um, is it going to be around Mother's Day weekend or not? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I can't. I think the. I think it might be the Saturday before Mother's Day. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. And and then I wanted to mention to folks that the same number that you would call to find out about sisters mobilizing mentally is the same number you call to find out and get on the list for be still. So, um, yeah, is it? Uh, can people still? Um, Show up tomorrow for Be Still? Well, I know my staff would get upset with me, but I we never t- turn anybody away. If you show mm-hmm. up, you'll, you'll definitely get in. Okay. Is, is it mean, at Niles Hall yeah. in Preservation Park? Uh, yes, it's at Niles Hall. There's free parking across the street. There'll be some um, young men that will direct you towards the parking, and you just literally have to walk across the street. Okay. Yeah. So that I know that's on the corner of um of um 14th and MLK, but do you have an address for Niles Hall? 
You know, I don't. I don't, but we're located. I mean, Niles Hall, it's on Martin Luther King. It's right behind um, the uh, African American Museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been really great. Um, yeah, this magazine is simply awesome, and people need to get one. Will, will they be available um, at the uh, at HHREC if people go there for the uh, orientation, or will they be available at um, Be Still if they they uh, end up going to um, uh, to the Be Still uh, retreat tomorrow? They they will be available at the Be Still retreat. And mm-hmm. if you're not able to make the retreat, you can also come to the office, you know, at 1905 San Pablo um, Avenue and pick up your, you know, pick up copies. And we, you know, mm-hmm. we welcome people coming to pick up uh, multiple copies because that helps us distribute it out into the community. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And it's just like a really nice little manual. Um, you talked about toxic love patterns and and how to turn that around, how to recognize it, how to turn it around, and then toxic communication, you know, and, and mm-hmm. antidotes for that, you know, appreciation or gratitude, thankful recognition, admiration, feeling of wonder, pleasure, or approval, acceptance, approval, allowing to permit something to happen or exist, and then affection, devotion, or love, as opposed to, you know, criticism, contempt, combativeness, mm-hmm. Or attacking, or defending, control, and coldness. Yeah, just, just you know, those words. You know, like isn't that interesting? Um, the toxicity. You know, have all these C's. You know, which is a hard sound, right? You know, and then the mm-hmm. antidote is all this ah. You know, <laughs> all these these. You know, open, open. You know, kind of um, uh, of you know the vowel sounds. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. yeah. You know, I also want to point out in the magazine on um page mm-hmm. 2, we've got a mm-hmm. um we've got an image of our how do I feel poster. Um, That's a really nice and, poster. And you know, one of the things how that came about was, you know, we were the um community advisory board, we were talking about black women's emotions and how mm-hmm. really society only lets us have three. Either we're going to be mad, sad, or glad. And so there's such a range of emotions that can also help people understand, you know, just kind of like what's going on, you know, for, with them and how to even express, you know, um, how how am I feeling? So that poster is also available at the uh, same place where you, you can get our um, our magazine. And we do we're asking people too to help us spread this um, this poster around. Mhm. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I, um... I have one um on the door for my grandson and uh and I I think he's he's 3 now but it's it's been up for over a year. <laughs> and uh and then I I cut up one I have a match match the faces and um and so we ask him, you know, sort of, you know, which one is this and which one is that and and then giving other words like embarrassed and worried and playful mm-hmm. to see sort of how he, you know, you know, mm-hmm. you know, sort of what what he's thinking around, you know, cognitively with those particular words, because, um, yeah, a lot of times, you know, we we don't have we don't have enough vocabulary to express how we're feeling. We only have like mm-hmm. four, you know, the four defaults: <laughs> happy, sad, mad, right, exactly. or angry. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a whole yeah. range. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, so we got a lot of a lot of attention and success with this um with this poster, and um you know various schools have called and come down and gotten um we've given them out at conferences, and so they're they're really um something that I think is is giving us a broader language to express. Well, how am I feeling? Mm-hmm. Right, and it's so funny. You know, I was just thinking. Um, a person could could wear a button, and it could change. <laughs> like this is how I'm feeling right now, and I'm feeling hopeful. And then it's like, oh, I got it. So it's like now I'm feeling proud. <laughs> wow, that's a great idea. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about the thermometer. You know how you have a th- the um, the feeling thermometer, and and you sort of like rate where you're feeling and people sometimes well that's what I use sometimes when I'm doing circles. It's like, okay, where are you on the thermometer? Are you you know, sort of where are you feeling? And then at the end take the temperature again, right? And see if it's moved mm-hmm. <laughs> any particularly if it was in an area that wasn't, you know, pleasant. And so I was just thinking about that. How you could put these little faces on on the on the thermometer. I mean, you could definitely put it on, like, a circle that could go around and, you know, and people could, like, sort of check in with how they're doing. But to have a button, wouldn't that be kind of cool? Oh, very cool. Hey, don't mm-hmm. get surprised if it shows up. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you give me one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And and then lastly, I want to mention, um, I was noticing that there's a sister-to-sister peer support group and healing circle. Um, yeah. that's a part of um, downtown Tay, I believe. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you want to talk sounds... a little bit about downtown Tay and the, uh, um, you know, who they are and about this sister to sister? Yeah, well, well, downtown Tay is one of our um, one of our programs that focuses on transitional age youth, and we particularly focus on African American youth. And between the ages of 18, sometimes up to uh, 28, and one of our one of our um, programs is this is the sister to sister project that happens. Actually, it's a, co- a collaboration with United Roots, and um, it's offered on the first and third. Oh, excuse me, it's the second and fourth Thursday of the month, and it's led by t- um, Tanika Blue. And it's a facilitated discussion, particularly around, you know, receiving peer support. And it's one of those ways that we work to connect um, women to not be so isolated out there, to have an opportunity, you know, to hear from other sisters about how to to inspire, you know, healing. And sometimes we need a little outside help to inspire us, to to want to to live the life that, that we know that we can. And so, um, so downtown Tay also offers um, what we call the Culture Broker Academy. It's a four-week commitment where young people are introduced to um, our history. They're um, focuses on various role models throughout the African diaspora, and it gives them the opportunity to to know that they're much more than what they hear out in the media or whatever these microaggressions are telling them. And that's a very positive um, experience for the young people. We we bring in guest speakers. um, They learn how to do ritual. They learn how to set up their own altars. 
and there's a graduation that they have, mm-hmm. and it's just a, a really positive experience. And then after they graduated, we, we asked them to participate in some leadership activities. Um, Downtown Tay also offers what we call a warm hub, um, an opportunity to just come down and maybe just relax. Or um, I see many times, like when I walk past the, um, you know, the Downtown Tay room, I'll see young men in there in what looks like interview attire. Yeah, they'll mm-hmm. they'll come down and they'll hang out till it's time for them to go to their interview. Um, and so it's a place too where as, as young people are trying to connect to the resources that are going to help, you know, change their lives. Whether it's you know getting a GED, high school diploma, um, social services support, but they have some place they can come to that understands what they're working on and provides them that support to you know to not get frustrated because oftentimes the system can frustrate young people in such a way, and so we. Um, you know, give them that support just to hang in there if they need. Sometimes it's just a, a California ID. They don't have an ID, and a young young black male walking around with that ID sometimes can put them into, um, you know, to some risky situations when they when they interact with police or something. So, so our whole goal with Downtown Tay is one is to to have these young people reconnect to a community, because often they're not you know connected to any. Um, adults, uh, we many many of our young people are homeless or they've come out of the foster care system, and so there's just a great need to to give them that guidance to, as as we say, to grow and in you know that transition to adulthood. Mhm. Yeah. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Is there anything um, else that you'd like to share um, regarding, um, you know, the Black Women's Media Wellness Project uh, magazine, Crossing the Invisible Line 3, Overcoming Depression, or, um, you know, other projects and work that you're doing at um, HHREC? Um, um, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I want to let like people to. know the Black Joy Parade is, is Sunday. <laughs> oh, so, I know, I know. Our young people will be out there, um, you know, recruiting and passing out flyers. But what I do want to say is that we are currently recruiting for new community advisory board members for the Black Women's hmm. Media and Wellness Project. Um, you know, it's an opportunity to help shape what the Be Still retreats are. Um, it helps us shape what kind of messaging. I mean, the poster came up from a uh, community advisory board meeting. Um, and so if people are interested, um, it meets once a month on the second Tuesday from 530 to uh, 730. And so uh, anyone's interested in joining, they can give a call. And just leave their information, and we'll get back to them. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Wow. It was always really wonderful, Colette, to speak to you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, your book that you're working on? That's, um, is it at the publisher? Where is it at now? <laughs> well, it's now, I, it, the manuscript's been edited. Um, the title okay. is Now Isabel. Um, I'm excited about it. It's about an African-American woman who grew up in the 30s and 1930s and that she's um, on the spectrum of um, autism. And so mm-hmm. she's got quite an amazing life that she goes through. Um, you know, I do want to give a shout-out that on uh, February 29th, I'll be reading along with um, about 10 other local authors 
that will be at the West Oakland um, Library from um, 1 to 4. Okay, yeah, yeah. What's that program called? I, I thought I had missed it. I'm glad I haven't. Um, yeah, because this, this happened last year, the year before. I think it's the third one, right, or something like that? Um, you know, yeah, this the is fifth, the first the fifth one. Annual local Authors Showcase, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, great. Yeah, this is the first one that I'll be participating in. And I'm, you know, just looking for, I know a number of the authors that are going to be there. And so it should be a good time. Um, I'll be having my um, my first novel, Undoing Crazy. I'll have copies there, you know, for sale. And uh, I'm planning to read some from my um, from my manuscript as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's a free event, 1801 Adeline, right across from mm-hmm. uh, Little Bobby Hutton Park or Defermery Park. Yeah, right there on mm-hmm. that corner, across from the Senior Center on the other corner. Yeah, really um, public transportation accessible. A lot of buses stop there. Yeah. Oh, cool, cool. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Super. I guess the last thing that I'd like to say is, mm-hmm. Wanda, thank yeah. you. You are such a community treasure. Um, you're a community treasure with the way that you just continue to put out all the information of the great things that are happening, you know, um, in our community. And I just want to thank you. Oh, you're welcome, Colette. You're quite welcome. It's been really great. Um, I've known you for many years. Um, I don't know if I met you with the um, uh, the the, uh, the conductors. You know, the um, where everybody got their number. That was back when you were with yeah. um, uh, the Black United um, Fund, right? Right. The Critical Mass Health Conductors. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was really, really cool, and it's so neat the way you know folks have their numbers. I did, I never got a number, but I remember <laughs> when those meetings were happening over at um, I guess where where Summit is now, and and uh, mm-hmm. and Merritt uh, Samuel Merritt College. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, you're just always doing so much great work around. I mean, real consistent around, you know. Um, Black mental health and and healing and and then the whole you know focus on on Black women health and and that is just so wonderful you know that you know that there is an institution you know where you know that where people of Africanness and particularly Black women are like real central to its functioning and 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 that that is the you know that is the um, the mission and it hasn't changed you know. And I remember when you all were over by Jacqueline Square, and now you're in this nice space, and, you know, Tay is there, and it's just so many great community programs come through there. It just seems like if there's space and there's time, you make it work, (laughs) which is really cool. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. So, yeah, be still tomorrow, and as well as the sisters mobilizing mentally, um, a lot of good things happening. Yeah, and it's all about well being well, right? Because when you're well, you can there you be go. you're happy. I mean, you know, you can't be happy if uh, you're not feeling good. <laughs> that's true, and you know, our our health is our freedom. Mm-hmm. It it truly is. You know, it, it allows us to, you know. Our wellness, our um, you know, our good health practices. It just allows us to to do so much with our lives. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Well, you take care and have a good rest of the day preparing for tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward. I always look forward to the beasts. Yeah, yeah, I haven't been to a beast still in a long time. Maybe I'll make myself get on over there and just have a moment of being still before I get on with the rest of my, my day. It's going to be a long one. Yeah, well, you might see me. Okay, well, hey, okay, we'll <laughs> definitely keep a lookout for you. Okay, cool. <laughs> Looking forward okay. to um to reading um your your book once it's published, your new one. Hey, and have thank you on you. to talk thank about you. that. <laughs> yeah, well, it definitely is. It's a labor of love. It gives me. Uh, sometimes I say, I, my writing keeps me sane. Hmm. You know. Yeah, yeah, because one of the one of the strategies um, that's mentioned uh, in the magazine is about how how art, you know, music, writing, you know, all mm-hmm. the different forms, um, dance, you know, help us, you know, um, help us sort of counter, you know, what's going on, you know, because depression is something going on, you know, not just psychologically, but it's also part of our physical, you know, biology. Um, you know, people are you like you're not making this up. You know, it's something really going on, and these others mm-hmm. are ways to help kind of mitigate that. You know, as we do other things like make sure that our diet is good, you make sure we're getting the proper mm-hmm. support, make sure that our environment is not toxic with regards to people. You know, maybe, <laughs> or even just yes. sort of where we're living. You know, it's all it's, it's all you know. It's not just one thing, but art is definitely up there, high up there with a healing you know, practice that we need to, like, make sure that we get a chance to, like, not just go for a walk on the beach, but, you know, go to the art gallery, listen to some good music, move our body, you know, do some writing. Right. Yeah, even if, yeah, yeah it's all, mm-hmm, yeah. And, and even, and it's you know, all, doing, mm-hmm. well, I was going to say, even doing vision boards at home, you know, yeah. if you're kind of feeling some kind of way, it's like, Create a vision board or something uh, that's showing how you want to feel, where you see yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so many. I just there's so many ways that we can, you know, begin to create, um, you know, create art in our in our lives that that, that can show up in many ways. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then now with you know technology, um, it's uh, it's easy to. Uh, uh, you know, you don't have to actually have a magazine to cut up. <laughs> you could just like, uh, you could maybe, you could just like grab pictures. Like you go to some, go to Instagram, yeah. you find like all kind of pictures. You just put in a search. Okay, I'm feeling blah blah blah, and then you could just get all these Google images, and it's like, oh, this is the one. It's just, you could do a virtual wow. image board. Although it's nice to actually cut the paper. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and put the put the you glue know. on the paper and stick it on the on the larger paper. <laughs> Yeah, but thank you for mentioning that way. I tend to be a little old school, but it's also, yeah, you know, the digital world can also contribute to art making. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and because you could always print it out, too, and then you have a a tangible sort of representation, and you could always print out the pictures and then cut them out. Um, That Mm -hmm. works, too, if you don't have, I don't know, um, a lot of magazines to be able to look for that right image or that right word. That sort of mm-hmm, articulates mm-hmm. what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes you don't even know what you're feeling until you see the picture. Like, oh yeah, that's it. <laughs> you know, that's true. Sometimes you just don't know how you're feeling, and you need. And some people, you know, the image 
you know, a word will help you say, yeah, that's what's going on for me. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, cool. Well, once again, it's been great having you on, Colette. It's always, you're so busy, so it's really wonderful that, you know, we were able to um, to have this conversation and certainly looking forward to others. And, uh, gosh, if I can fit it in my schedule, I definitely want to come check you all out um, um, next weekend because um, I, I had a starred, um, you know, of course, there's a bunch of other stuff mm-hmm. that might be also start. But, yeah, my, my intention is to come. We'll see if it happens. But, uh, yeah, I was like, oh, it would be so nice to just go sit in, you know, at the West Oakland uh, Library and just hang out with all these black authors. Like, oh, that would be fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know the energy is going to be just amazing. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. You have a good day. Thanks again. Oh, thank you. And same to you. Thanks for inviting me. Right. Take care. You're welcome. Peace and blessings. Mm-hmm. Good morning, uh, Brother Adewale. Uh, Ige? EJ? Yes. EJ? How yes, do you ma'am. You pronounced it right the first time, Ige. Oh, EJ. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, thanks so much for the call. Wow, I hadn't even realized that Brother Malcolm, you know, um, was, um, gosh, uh, you know, sort of taken from us, um, you know, um, on February 21st, 1965. Yeah, yeah, like so suddenly, you know, 39 years old, he wasn't 40 yet. It was his 40th year, but he wasn't 40 and... Yeah, he he gave so much in 39 years, right? It's like, oh, my goodness, he did so much. Um, And and sort of, you know, to be able to reflect on his life, um, you know, now with you um, is just really, really, I'm really looking forward to it. So um, so why don't you present to our audience sort of what you told me um, around around Brother Malcolm and, and why it's important that we remember him. To honor and love and understand and respect uh, the Honorable Malcolm X, El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz, is a phenomenal thing, and it's also a curse to certain people's ears for the reason of what they call um, social manipulation. We've been taught in this society to not follow those that speak the truth 100% of the time. That's what we call living the truth, and that's what our brother Malcolm has done. Malcolm, as you, as you eloquently said, he spent 39 years on this planet. And the amount that he's done in 12 years that he was with um, the Nation of Islam, he's accomplished so much. We fail to realize the conceptual thinking of a person who has been in many different lifestyles but has changed. Fail to realize that if Brother Malcolm in 1946, if, we, if we, he was murdered then, it wouldn't matter. When I say it wouldn't matter, it wouldn't matter to society because he wasn't Malcolm X yet. He was still Malcolm Little, Malcolm Red. Uh, Malcolm, uh, uh, yeah, Detroit Red. Detroit Red. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what they called him. But the, the, the prominent part about that is when he went into prison in 1946 and he came out August 7, 1952, and he inserted himself inside the Nation of Islam, he spent six years in prison. And he said, to send any brother or any person a place to think, there's two places that's number one on his mind. One was college. 
two was prison. The reason why he said prison is because it completely changed his psychology. That's the thing that we have to look at in his atmosphere. So in his social setting growing up, the atmosphere of where he grew up in many different places created the atmosphere for a Malcolm X. That was the evolution of Malcolm Little. That's what we have to look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about about yourself and, and, and how you came to know um, El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz. Well, brother, brother Malcolm has been one of my heroes since ever since I can remember. I was mm. studying the Honorable Mumia Abu-Jamal, and he spoke of Malcolm in such a shining light, just as well as the Honorable Brother Ozzy Davis has done as he referred to our Brother Malcolm as the black shining prince, in which he is. I started to read the autobiography of Malcolm X that was written, well, co-written by our Brother Alatelli, as told to him by Brother Mal- Malcolm X. And as I read that book, it was so phenomenal and so vivid the way he portrayed his daily life, and it was vivid for me to see it. It affected me in such a way, his thinking, his philosophies, his principles, key word principles, that he wouldn't bend or break for the betterment of the people. That infatuated me with him. And then I started to look at his readings, his speeching. Excuse me, his speeches, the things that he read when he was in prison, the art of convincing people was one of them. You know, the art of war by Sun Tzu, he read many different books. And as he's talking about these books and referring to them in his lectures, it showed me a different side of the so-called, you know, African-American that was proud, that is proud to be an African, just living in the Western Hemisphere. So listen to Mumia and how he spoke about Brother Malcolm, It just, I decided to study him in Ever since then, he's been my hero, one of my many heroes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this week, I think I mentioned to you um, when um, when you proposed that we um, we spend some time talking about uh, Brother Malcolm was that this uh, this week uh, was kicked off Monday uh, with on the birthday of uh, Huey P. Newton. Doctor Huey P. Newton is. Um, uh, Black Solidarity Week, and they've been having you know these various activities um, since Monday. Um, a few of them at Joyce Gordon Gallery and others in other places, and um, and so um, yeah, I was just wondering um, we could continue um, sort of talking about about Brother Malcolm's um, evolution and uh, and and his work, some of the tangible ways that he changed. Um, this society and um, an African, in the way he brought attention to the African diaspora, particularly what was happening to happening to black people here in this uh, this country. Absolutely, he was the first, to the best of my knowledge. And I think this is pretty accurate. I could be wrong, but he's the first in so-called African American history to make the direct connection from America to Africa when it comes to our people. He made that connection. He, made, he went on his second pilgrimage, his tour throughout Africa, and the phenomenal leaders he met, I'll just name a few if you don't mind, he met mm-hmm. and uh, had long meetings with the Honorable Kwame Nkrumah from Ghana. He spoke to President Nasir of Egypt on the time. This is the year of 1964, mind you. Um, he spoke to uh, Ahmed 
uh, Ben Bella from Algeria. He spoke at the University of Ibadan, which is in uh, Nigeria, my country, in which he earned, which is some people don't know, he earned his birthright name that he didn't get from the nation of Islam, which is Omowale, which means the child has returned home. He was given that by the student union in Nigeria. See, these are things that he, he was doing to connect with these leaders to bring light, to illuminate the atrocities that's happening to our people here in the United States of America, they call it. The world wasn't seeing that because America is the number one at branding, so it shields itself. For example, you know, if you go to a certain place in, in America, they will say, well, Africans are poor. They don't have anything. Malcolm illuminated the fact that they have the same thing in America, but it's, it's escalated when it comes to Africans, and he made that marriage between so-called African-Americans to Africans and make them actually appreciate and look into each other's struggles. It's the same struggle, just a different geographical location. That's what made Malcolm phenomenal. At the Oxford debate in 1964, when no one appreciated him, he illuminated what the government was doing to all of African people systematically, the mass incarceration, you know, all the Jim Crows, all these different things he was bringing to light that the rest of the world wouldn't see. So, so to speak, he just lifted the dress on those things to allow people to see the embarrassment that this country is enduring because of the light of this information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit about um, El Hajj El Shabazz's um, uh, organization of um, organization of African unity, Afro American unity, and and how um, you know how he actually are you traveling? <laughs> Oh, people are walking are you, past me. I apologize. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could talk sort of talk about how um Haj Malik El Shabazz was actually invited by um the first um president of an independent um African nation, um um uh Doctor uh, Kwame um Nkrumah to um to his uh organization to his um convening of the um African with the organization of African unity i'm trying to, I'm drawing a blank on like the actual like the language of like the name of the organization, but I know that Shabazz was the only person from the diaspora that was at this particular strategic and important meeting of African nations where he was invited to talk about what was going on with African Americans you know Africans in the diaspora here in this country. Yes, that's the meeting that I was uh, I was referencing when I brought up uh, oh. the Honorable Kwame Nkrumah from Ghana. He also uh, okay. he wasn't there by himself. He was there with Secretary as well. They're the first two in world history to have two African people rule the same empire equally. That's the first time that second time that's happened in history. I apologize. It happened in Kemen as well. But moving forward about Malcolm, um, when well, he was let's, invited let's to that, up. he let's back, let's back. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait a second. Backtrack. So, um, in 1958, Ghana became the first independent um, uh, African nation, and and then um, through you know the neo-colonialism manipulation of of these other you know Western states, um, President Nkrumah, um he uh, he was exiled, right? He was in exile, and that's when his friend. Yeah. Um, um, uh, the uh, president of of Guinea invited him mm-hmm. to be president, co-president there. So it didn't it just it didn't happen like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you skip some things. 
um, in, 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 the, in the story. I just wanted to feel oh, that's, that's, that's correct. That's correct. Thank you for that. I appreciate that for the correction. I appreciate that. And that will be noted in future reference. Thank you for that. Um, mm-hmm. In reference to that meeting, that's how uh, Brother Malcolm constructed the organization of Afro-American Unity, which is based off uh, what Kwame, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, the Honorable Kwame Nkrumah, was doing. So when he came back to, uh, to the, the States, his foundation was in a Teresa Court Hotel, and that's where he was starting this organization that would work with non-religious members of any uh, religious belief system that wanted positive influence on the progression of our people in this country. That's where the foundation came from, uh, the Honorable Kwame Nkrumah's idea and his uh, philosophy, from mm-hmm. what I understand. Yeah. Right, yeah. And I was wondering, um, uh, do you have, um, can you share something with our audience um, from, uh, you know, uh, Hajj Malik El-Shabazz's, um, you know, many, many speeches and writings? Um, do you have anything you could uh, pull up and share with us? Um, Absolutely. You, you mentioned that you had, okay, super. Absolutely. He said, uh, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and only pull it out six inches, there's no progress. If you, pull it, if you pull a knife all the way out, that's not progress. Progress is the healing of the wound that the blow made. And they haven't even pulled up the knife, more or less, to admit the knife was even there. So that's what he was mm-hmm. saying about when he was talking, when he was giving the truth about something that's happened to our people, in reference to happening to our people, Europeans won't accept it because it's the blunt truth. They won't acknowledge it even happened. So there's no healing process. So his point on that was, how can one be, um, how can how can one be thr- thrive to move forward when the problem and the damage hasn't been addressed to repair that problem in order to mend ways to move forward? That's one of my favorite quotes from him. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, Malcolm X, his his mother and father um, were um, were. Um, Members of the uh, Marcus Garvey's, uh, the Honorable Marcus Garvey's uh, Universal Negro Improvement Association. In fact, you know his his father, Earl Little, uh, was a preacher who was you know an active member of this local chapter in Omaha, uh, Nebraska. And his mother, uh, Louise, was a homemaker, and um, and Malcolm X was the fourth of eight children born to his parents, Louise and and Earl Little. And and just you know just the whole way that um, you know systemically this you know the government just you know his father was killed and some and people find that questionable the way that he was killed and then his mother um, you know um, had a mental breakdown and then the children were like sent out to into all these different strange families you know as foster children and. And and then El Haj Malik, who was like really brilliant child, he was you know excelling in school, and and meanwhile you know he was being shut down by the public school system, saying no you can't you know be uh, a pilot, no you can't be an attorney, no you can't do any of these things that you uh, aspire to because you're a black boy, and um, and you know just sort of looking at how you know systemically the systems in place. Um, sort of created, um, you know, this child, this young man, this person who was operating outside of, you know, the social, you know, norm, you know, uh, 
and and creating an alternative culture, which was sort of, you know, outside of of the law, the legal system here. Um, and and like you know, you you mentioned that um, when he was when he was incarcerated, um, he actually got a chance to evaluate those those different concepts and these different um, this knowledge he thought he had and realized he didn't know anything, right? And and that's where he sort of learned about words and the power of language and also about he learned how to read. Yes, he definitely brushed up on his skills. Um, uh, he brushed up on his skills when he was in prison. And as you said, as he was parceled out in different foster homes, we have to look at the situation that there's not too much of a difference that happened, that's happening today. Louise mm-hmm. Little, she she wasn't, um, as he talked about in his autobiography, she wasn't automatically admitted to an institution. She was pressured by the system to foster out those children, which breaks up families, which is just an ancestor of the transatlantic slave trade, breaking up families, you know, um, and that's, that's what destroys the infrastructure of people. That's what made him feel hopeless. That's what made him decide to uh, make certain mistakes that he made at the time of desperation. So the question is, do we blame the victim or do we blame the environment and the system that created that philosophy mm-hmm. and that principle to make him make those decisions and people like him even 55 years later? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, just think about you know that trauma. And you're right. Um, there are so many of our children, um, black children, in foster care system. You know, presently in the foster care system, has never been ranked well. Um, like overall, it's usually like, oh man, you don't want your kid to go there. If there's a family member that's, you know, that can take the child, definitely you want to keep the baby. You want to keep the child in the family. Um, when when the family is is healthy and able to, you know, to to rear this child and um, and then it's so difficult a lot of times for families to get resources to be able to take care of the child. Like you know, this particular family member might want to take the child, but then the family member doesn't have enough income to do a good job, and so these strangers get the money, whereas the parent, you know, as a the relative can't get money to help raise this child. So it's really crazy and backwards the way that, but I'm sure it's intentional, the way that families are being um, uh, separated. And uh, I was reading um, in a in a, a biography on, on Malcolm X, um, he, uh, he remembers, uh, he says, when my mother was pregnant with me, she told me later, a party of hooded Ku Klux Klan riders galloped mm-hmm. up to our home. Brandishing their shotguns and rifles, they shouted for my father to come out. So I'm thinking, you know, like that kind of, you know, experience that his mother had, it it affected, you know, Malcolm before he was born. Because when a mother is traumatized, the life she's carrying, the baby is also traumatized. So, you know, he already he came into this world with with some things that he, you know, he might not be able to articulate, but it was there. To touch on, I agree with you 2,000%. To touch on the Honorable Marcus Garvey, how it affected mm-hmm. our brother Earl Little, the Honorable Earl Little and Louise Little, and also Malcolm and, and, and Future Perfect, um, he was teaching something that Malcolm picked up on and took it further, which was the, the, the ability to create a school, a philosophy with our own curriculum, 
not having a state over our curriculum that's teaching half-truths or flat-out lies. This is what affects the, the – uh, this is what affects the self-esteem of our children, of our brothers and sisters growing up. If we don't know what we've done in the past, it's virtually impossible for us to have an adequate future because we don't have a foundation. Buildings aren't built on sand. They're built on foundation. Without a foundation, what do we have? So today, modern day, we need to build our own schools with our own curriculum and teach our own history because no one is teaching our history correctly. Everyone else is telling our story except for us. We need a council of elders in those schools, in our community, to counsel the youth, to counsel the ones who come back who are, who are not recycling crime from situations that they were put in and branded them with this thing they call a felony from something they've done when they were 16 years old. These are things that Malcolm was teaching and the Honorable Marcus Garvey was teaching. These are the philosophies that we need to continue. So I agree with you. We need this foundation of elders in our own schools to regulate and and operate our own system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. I mean, because if, um, you know, black community would have been allowed to thrive because, um, you know, um, in, in the same um, reference that I'm mentioning, um, uh, it says that the harassment continued when Malcolm was four years old and local clan members smashed all the family's windows. And we, we remember similar kind of stories with Dr. King, right, because Dr. King and Malcolm X are peers. So, you know, Dr. King, you know, um, sort of, you know, sort of resisting, um, you know, racial discrimination in the form of legal segregation um, nonviolently, so to speak. And he was being, you know, his family was being terrorized as well. And we see how that rippled and how that affected, you know, his children. And so to protect his family, um, Malcolm's father moved his family from Omaha to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and then in 1926 to Lansing, Michigan, uh, actually in 1926 mm-hmm. to Lansing, Michigan in 1928. And then the racism in Lansing was greater than Omaha. <laughs> and then after they moved, the family moved in, a racist mob set their house on fire in 1929. And then we, like, fast mm-hmm. forward and we think about the fires and the bombs that uh, that El Haj Malik's family experienced. Remember, like right before when he went to Detroit for that last speech, where um, yeah, they bombed us. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where our sister Rosa Parks, you know, she was a great fan. She loved Brother Malcolm. He loved him. He, she was like so much his supporter, and uh, yeah, and and she was there when he gave that speech in Detroit. Um, yeah, and so when this house, their house was set on fire in 1929, that means Malcolm was like four years old. The town's all-white emergency responders didn't even do anything. And we think about MOVE, right, in Philly, how, mm-hmm. you know, the mayor dropped a bomb on the on the community, and, and then they told the fire department, don't, don't put it out, let it burn. And similar here, it's like um, Malcolm remembers, he says, the white police and firemen came and stood around watching the house burn to the ground. It's like, boy, these people, the M.O. is like so similar, right? Nothing has changed, right? Well, I remember the Move 9 bombing. I'm actually, I grew up in Philadelphia. I was born and raised in Philadelphia. So I know about the That's Move right. 9 and with the founder of uh, named John Africa and Ramona Africa and others as well. There were children who died in that bombing as well. The name, the name mm-hmm. of that mayor that you're referencing is named Mayor Rizzo. Um, and he was a well-known racist. He said so many different things. Uh, oh, I thought, I, thought it was, I thought it was the uh, good. 
I thought it was um, no, that wasn't Mayor Good. Oh, it wasn't. Oh, no, that wasn't Mayor Good. That was Rizzo for sure. One hundred percent. That was Rizzo. Yes. Oh no, I, I take your so word the for thing it. Of, okay. Yeah, the thing about him is that situation was definitely a tragedy, unfortunate to have a military strike. That's called domestic terrorism. To have a, uh, a military drop a bomb on a residential home only because the MOVE organization was practicing the same cultural practice as their African ancestors in the property in which they were paying rent. So there were no complaints about that. So to drop a military bomb on camera, for the listeners, they can find us on YouTube. Just type in MOVE, move bombing, and it, it destroyed about 46 homes on both sides of the street. They were ordered to let it burn. It's on video. Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. And um, and so then, um, two years after that, in 1931, um, uh, Malcolm's father, Earl Little, was his body was found lying across the municipal streetcar tracks, and uh, and so the family, Malcolm X's family, believed his father was murdered by white supremacists, from whom he had received frequent death threats, and the police officially ruled his death a streetcar accident. Uh, thereby avoiding the large ins- life insurance policy he had purchased in order to provide for his mm-hmm. family in the event of his death. So that's how the family ended up being in poverty. And um, and since we don't have a long, we only you know we're running out of time. I wanted I wanted us to end on despite all of this, you know, all of this trauma in his early life. Like wow, like he wasn't even ten years old. Thirty one. He was born in. He was six, right? Um, this, this little boy had experienced so much, you know, hardship and, and violent trauma. And and for him to uh to be to transform into this, oh my goodness, this this world leader, you know, fearless world leader. It's like, wow, you know. Um why don't you talk a little bit, um, in our closing minutes, uh just, you know, sort of things you want people to remember about our brother. Well, I would like to people, all of our people, to remember that he didn't just talk it; he lived it. You know, he made his pilgrimage and he studied and met different leaders in Ethiopia, Nigeria, Ghana, Sudan, Senegal, uh, many different places. You know, Liberia, Algeria, Morocco, Kemet, which they call uh, Egypt modern day. I firmly mm-hmm. believe that for all the list, all of our beautiful brothers and sisters and others listening in all studio audience you know, on the air. I feel that we should make Malcolm X's birthday, which is May 19th, 1925, our own holiday. Now, if we look at the fact that others have made holidays on the calendar and we're begging for one, I think that we should take one a day a year for all of our historical leaders and brothers and sisters. We should just take that day off. The Italians didn't ask for a day. They've taken a day, which they, the person they call Cristobal Columbus. For other people, it's Christopher Columbus. So they, they've taken that day and put it on the calendar. We should take our own day and honor our own heroes. So everyone should, my personal opinion, we should honor that day. No one should go to work May 19th and honor it and make it our day, just as well as others as well. It's important to see the work that he put in with his life on the line. He said, I'm willing to die as a man telling the truth just so my children can walk in the future with their heads held high and not by a compromising father. I will never compromise. Words like that are words that we should live by. Words like that are things we should focus on. Words like that are things that we should put in our children and let them carry that to the future and develop more ideas. 
The most important part of the tree is the root, as you always say. Yeah. I wanted to mention that um, in the city of um, of Berkeley and Oakland, um, I believe um, um, – May nineteenth, the children school. don't. Yeah, children don't go to school. It, Malcolm X's uh, birthday is is honored, and in Peralta Community College District, Malcolm X uh, Day is also honored. As, you know, as well as you know, folks like uh, Cesar Chavez. Um, and yes. so, so you know, within the the Bay Area, um, and I don't know, maybe even San Francisco, but I know, I know, Peralta, I know Oakland Unified and and Berkeley Unified. Um, have have claimed that day as one of reflection uh, around Black liberation and um, and and Malcolm X's uh, you know um, contribution um, you know to to the liberation of our people. You know, you think about Malcolm X and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and and their really um, you know strategy might have been um, different, but the goal was the same. You know, um, African liberation. You know, freedom for our people. And uh, and and the two men, you know, had spoken to one another, and um, and and when uh, Mal- when um, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, was killed, um, Al Haj Malik Al Shabazz, you know, asked his wife, was there anything that he could do, you know, to to help the family? So um, so yeah, so similar to the conversation and the discord. That's often um, sort of churned around the Honorable Marcus Garvey and W.B. Du Bois. You know, in the end, you know, Du Bois came full circle because he ended up, you know, becoming a citizen of Ghana and dying in Ghana, right? And exactly. and Marcus Garvey is is you know was a hero of uh, <laughs> of President Nkrumah. So you know, you saw, you hear all these like. Differences of opinions, but in all, in the end, it, it all sort of works itself out, you know. Um, you know, different different yeah. strategies, you know, different ways of thinking, but in the end, you know, it's the love of our people that is most paramount in in all of these men whom we are talking about presently. Yes, now the truth is coming out about what happened to our dear brother, the Honorable El Haj Malik El Shabazz Omawale. Now that we know everything that happened to him, well, a lot of things that happened to him and more and more about his assassination uh, in reference to uh, there's a Netflix documentary that's talking about him. I think it's prudent that everyone should watch that as well. And once we're seeing the truth, we should continue that legacy of not just speaking the truth, but living the truth, accepting accountability and responsibility for all the things we do as African people in America. Yeah, right. Well, uh, we have run out of time. Um, is there is? Won't you give maybe a couple of books or something besides the Netflix uh, doc that you would encourage people that are interested in learning more about El Haj Malik El Shabazz? What book would you suggest they read? The autobiography the of Malcolm X. Absolutely, I read it six times. I think they should uh, <laughs> read that book. I also think they should read his personal diary that his one of his daughters, I believe, his eldest daughter, is the one who published the book. I could be incorrect, but. Uh, it's his personal diary when he was making his travels throughout Africa. I have a copy of that one is detailed. It's his words, 110%. There's no influence on that. So that's a phenomenal mm-hmm. book as well. There's also the speeches, the speeches and writings of the Honorable Malcolm X. That's a really good one as well. It talks in detail about his – well, one can read the speeches, and there's a breakdown of those speeches 
from himself, his own notes. That's a very good one as well. Mm-hmm. Those are the only right. books I know and, of on him. And also The Assassination of Malcolm X is a short book I found out mm-hmm. about. Yeah. And, yeah, there there are collections of his speeches. And I also wanted to let people know that you can actually listen to him um, I mean, there I've run into archives where you can actually listen to um, Brother Malcolm, you know, delivering these various speeches. Um, you can find it. Um, um, well, if I can find it, I'll, I'll put a link to it. But it was really easy to find. Um, you know, these uh, these speeches of his, you know, going way way back to night to the early early 60s, coming forward um, until he passed. So if you want to hear his voice, not just read it, but hear his voice, you can also um, listen to him because a lot a lot of his speeches and debates and things like that were archived. And some of those things are also in YouTube. And um, free access and a good librarian can help you find it. So thank you so much for joining us. And uh, have a good rest of the day. And, uh, yeah, thanks for, um, you know, pulling my coat around you know, um, this important day that we need to remember and pour libation and say ashe, uh, you know, for our brother Malcolm's uh, legacy and uh, and his memory and his work, which we certainly need to continue. Absolutely. The pleasure is all mine. I'm, I'm grateful for you. Thank you for allowing me to be your All right. Class. You take good care. Oh, you're welcome. Okay. So long. Until our next conversation. Peace and blessings. Absolutely. So long, sister. <laughs> Bye. For my next, um, Mr. Blatcher. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, I don't know this number, but I think that's him. <laughs> oh, Calling good from- morning. How are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Oh, I'm fine. Gosh, I mean, it's like, oh my good, we're getting ready to have this conversation that we've been wanting to have for a while. Yeah, I want our audience to know we're we're joining the studio by. Mr. Charles Blatcher the third. Oh my goodness. Um let me let me let me read you some of his alloc- uh accolades. Um <laughs> I'm looking at this really wonderful um uh uh C D project, the legendary Buffalo Soldier, Colonel Charles Young, USA, eighteen eighty nine to nineteen twenty two. From the cradle to glory, the man, the mission, the facts, profile of an African American patriot. And uh, musical score by how do you pronounce it? Black Queens, Black Queens Productions. Black Ice. Black Ice. Black Ice. Oh, okay. And it's narrated by you. It's really, really, really nice with music and everything. Um, <laughs> and we're going to talk about um, uh, Brigadier General Charles Young and other things. But let me read your bio that you sent okay. me earlier today. Um, Charles uh, Blatcher III is the founder and chairman of the National Coalition of Black Veteran Organizations, whose mission it is to raise public awareness of the military contributions of African Americans and other minorities. Uh, he served in the U.S. Navy from 1965 to 1969, then received an honorable discharge. Since that time, he has continued to serve his community and country by working as a consultant and advisor with entities such as the Department of the Army, the Department of the Interior, and the White House Conference on Families. He also served as commissioner with the city of Oakland, California. Which which commission? I was with the 
called the Employment Training Commission. That was years ago under Mayor Lionel Wilson. Okay. Nice. Wow, that was a minute ago. Wow, and that's great. Been at this a long time. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, Mr. Blatcher. Uh, also is the founder and chief executive officer of the National Minority Military Museum Foundation. He has received numerous honors recognizing his service. Among them are the George Washington Medal of Excellence, Freedom Foundation at Valley Forge in 1988, Congressional Black Caucus Award in 1999, International Educators Hall of Fame in 2000, Citizen of the Year, uh, Omega Psi Phi Sigma Iota Chapter 2010. Citizen of the Year, Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporation in 2011. He also has served as an advisor for numerous documentaries focusing on the military experience and specifically on the contributions of African American servicemen and servicewomen. Um, any any documentaries that we would know? Well, we did the uh, African Americans in World War II, uh, Legacy of Patriotism and Valor, a number of years mm-hmm. ago, and it has shown on PBS, and it's still showing on PBS around the country periodically, especially during this month. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and one of his personal and professional endeavors has been raising awareness of and gaining recognition for the exemplary life and contributions of Kentucky native Charles Young. Are you a Kentucky native yourself? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I um, I was approached roughly 10 years ago. We were hosting a program at Colonel Young's gravesite in Arlington National Cemetery. And a couple of people from Kentucky came up to the program, and they made us aware that uh, the colonel's birth cabin was still standing in a little town called Mazelick, Kentucky. And it was in pretty bad shape. So myself and one of the members of our executive council, we decided to drive down and take a look. And that was 10 years ago, and we, I've been involved in Kentucky ever since. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And we have yeah. restored the cabin. The cabin has been restored. It will stand another 200 years. Oh, awesome, awesome, yeah. So so tell us about, um, you know, um, Brigadier General um, uh, Young and uh, about the wonderful um, uh, program, you know, um, honoring him last week uh, when you were there um, and, uh, and and the continued work, you know, that you um, have um, dedicated yourself and your organization to insofar as sort of lifting up these names, um, particularly looking at sort of the early, um, you know, uh, presence of, of African Americans um you know as you know as members of the military and um and and just you know sort of that that unspoken and uh invisible legacy that you know people don't know about I mean I'm just thinking about myself how last year I learned that there were over 400 uh, buffalo soldiers buried um at the presidio in the national um yes. uh, cemetery. And like yeah. and yeah. and you know, and you go online, you know, to the National Park Services and you can read all those names. And so what I did is I went out on Veterans Day and I read all four hundred something names and I looked for some of, you know, of the graves and, and just the whole thing around 
you know, um, the Buffalo Soldiers and, and what they did, you know, around, you know, through the now Department of the Interior, but, you know, being the first superintendent of a national park, you know, Sequoia and building roads, I mean, um, you know, gosh, um, you know, the general was, like, amazing in what he was able to accomplish. And he wasn't even that old when he passed. No, he wasn't. Uh, you know, he's he's very significant in military history, American military history and black military history. He's a very, very significant figure. He was the first first person, first black American to hold the rank of colonel in the regular armed forces. And from there, he should have been the first black general in the United States Armed Forces, but due to the political and social climate of the time of his service back in the early 1900s. The military wasn't quite ready for a black general. The colonel, you know, he's, in my opinion, he should have been the first black general, and we have advocated now for 40 years to get the title of general in front of his name. You know, the significance of the event that took place last week, it it holds a couple of different meanings for me. I mean, one meaning from the fact that I am the founder of the concept of pushing for the promotion, and for number two, based on the importance that it gives to the program that we're now leading towards trying to erect a statue in Washington, D.C., and working on the Media Arts Center that will be named in his honor. But from a personal standpoint, for 40 years we have been looking for this promotion. And I'm extremely excited about the fact that we finally found the one man that had the courage to stand up and do the right thing at the right moment, and that's the governor of Kentucky, the new governor of Kentucky, Governor Andy Bashir. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to some of my executive Council here yesterday and telling them that, uh, in my opinion, this is a credit to the governor because, in my opinion, he has stepped forward. It has taken us 40 years to find the one man to step forward and do the right thing in regards to Colonel Young. And we have the deepest and utmost respect for the governor for taking the stand. There was no politics involved and nothing like that. He recognized it was the right thing to do. And he told me before he was elected governor, he said, Charles, if I'm if the administration that was in office at the time won't do it, if I'm elected, I will give you guys Colonel Young. We will make him the general that he should be. And the man kept his word. And on February 11th, it was a very, very wonderful program that was sponsored by the Kentucky Black Legislative Caucus, Senator Gerald Neal and a Representative Reginald Meats, they did an excellent job with the program. It was something that everybody was proud of, and it was most fitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looked really great, um, particularly, um, you know, just hearing the stories of um, of the general's um, relatives who had known him. Um, I think um, there was a mention, was it in a Bible? I'm trying to remember how, how the... Yes. Um, Denise, mm-hmm. Denise Johnson, yes. Yes. She found a found a letter in a Bible, family mm-hmm. Bible, that 
made her aware that the colonel was one of their relatives. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's right. been exciting. I mean, we have found various relatives around the country that didn't even know one another. At the event mm-hmm. on the 11th, we had Miss Johnson was there, and at the same time, another one of the colonel's ancestors, uh, Lindsay Rayleigh. They had never met each other. They were not even aware each other existed. Mm-hmm. And so it's been a bit exciting to bring the families along as we move along with educating the public about the colonel. Right. Yeah, yeah. Who was there with you? Um it was I I I uh I looked at some clips um from from the news coverage um you know both um uh, broadcast and also right you know the uh print media. And it yeah. was it was a really it looked really good in that room. <laughs> yeah. yeah, tell us you know, who was there and uh-huh. <laughs> the media the media reported that we had about a hundred people, which which was a misstatement. We had people that Capitol building is three stories high. And mm-hmm. we had people lining the balconies all the way up to the third level looking oh, down wow. on the program. It mm-hmm. it was really it was really, really a very well attended event. And we had um, a part of the receiving team for for the award was uh, Lieutenant General William Ward, Major General Henry Huntley, Brigadier General Reuben Jones, and Brigadier General David Jenkins, along with the two descendants of the Colonel's family. So we we had a pretty we had a pretty good representation of the military and of the colonel's family in attendance at the program. Mhm. Right, yeah. And and you gave the keynote, right? Uh yes I did. Yes I did. And I basically yeah. talked about they'd asked me to speak about black military history and Colonel Young. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the subjects kind of they they run together. It's the same thing. You can't study black military history in Miss Colonel Young. Mm-hmm. He's probably one of the most important figures in the history from that standpoint. So I, I really I enjoyed the opportunity of uh, of talking about our military service and the colonel at the program. You know, many people don't realize our involvement in the defense of this country goes back to the colonial days. There were black Minutemen. Mm-hmm. And there was also 5,000 blacks that served in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. I've heard people say that blacks have served in every war and conflict fought under the American flag, which is not true. We were banned from enlistment in the military after the War of 1812. And through the Seminole Indian War from 1835 to 1842, there was no black enlistment in the United States Armed Forces, and reason being is because as a part of the Seminole Indian War, the Army actually helped to round up what they called runaway slaves and return them to the slave masters in the South. So, of course, Mm. we were not a part of that, and I'm glad to say that because many people claim that we were involved in every war and conflict, and that is one that we were not involved in. We came back into the military. The ban was lifted in 1862 during the Civil War. 
when the union ran short on manpower and decided to uh, to use black enlistment to help fortify the ranks. And we've been involved from that standpoint ever since. And I mean, and everyone knows that our involvement up until with the end of World War II was in segregated units. We served in the segregated military, which inhibited on Colonel Young being able to make the rank of general because he was restricted in where he could serve. He could not serve in command of white troops. So his service was pretty much restricted to the 9th and 10th Cavalry or the 24th and 25th Infantry Regiment or as a teacher at Wilberforce or later on as an attache that they sent to black countries. Mm-hmm. But the man had an extremely interesting history. I mean, he was, uh, at the time that he was promoted to lieutenant colonel, he was actually with General uh, General Pershing fighting, was it down in Mexico? That was during 1916 and 1917. And he went back when he went in 1917, when he went in front of the review board for the military, they made him a full colonel. But at the same time, they unexpectedly discharged him from the military and said he was physically unfit for duty. And to prove that they were wrong, he rode on horseback and walked from Wilberforce, Ohio, to Washington, D.C., a distance of almost 500 miles in 16 days to try to make an appeal to the War Department that he was physically fit to return to active duty. And they subsequently returned him to active duty, but it was like five days before the World War I ended, which was November 11, 1918. They brought him back to active duty at that time. But they brought him back at that time because he was passed the zone so they did not have to worry about promoting him to a brigadier. They brought him back and they stationed him at Camp Grant in Rockford, Illinois for a few months before they sent him back over to Liberia to serve as attache. And he died in Liberia in 1922. Uh, He became ill on a rescue mission and he died. He was buried in Lagos, Nigeria on January, I think it was January the 9th, 1922. And his body was exhumed in 1923 and returned to the United States upon the insistence of his wife and other national leaders. And at that time, he was laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery on June the 1st, 1923. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He has an yeah, extensive has- history. Yeah, he Go does. Um, yeah, we um, we spoke about him um, last year um, uh, with um, Brother Michael um, uh, Kubaka out in uh, Sacramento, who um, was uh, you know working with uh, legislators from the uh, California um, legislation legislature um, around naming that highway and. Um, and rededicating the sequoia that is named yeah. in uh uh the brigadier general's name uh on on the 11th of uh <laughs> of 2019 as well um yeah. yeah i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know sort of the department of the interior and um 
and the uh, the general's um, uh, presence here in California, the Bay Area specifically, you know, um, and uh, and and what would happen in the summer, you know, with the Buffalo Soldiers, and maybe give us a little background on the Buffalo Soldiers um, and and their um, their service in the military. Well, you know, the the Buffalo Soldiers came about in 1866 following the Civil War. What had happened after the war, the Army decided that it would reduce the number of blacks that were serving within the military ranks. They figured they no longer needed our service after the Civil War was over. So in the process of uh, reducing our presence in the military, an issue came up in in the West as to where settlers moving from the East to the West was falling under attack by Indians and the Chinese that were building the railroads were falling under attack by the Mexicans and the Indians. And so what they did with the remaining number of blacks remaining in the army, they divided them up into the 9th and 10th Cavalries and the 24th and 25th Infantry Regiments. Our Native American brothers and sisters gave us the title Buffalo Soldiers. That's where that came from. Yeah. The Buffalo Soldiers, the, the monolithic Buffalo Soldiers carried through on black troops up until, I believe, about 1951 during the, during the Korean War. Mm-hmm. But right. the originals, yeah. the 9th and 10th, 9th and 10th Cavalry, and the 24th and 25th Infantry Regiments. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And um, uh, from you know from the really wonderful um i guess um i guess archive not archive but narrative that's a part of the uh, national um uh parks uh services you can read about about the buffalo soldiers and um uh, and if you you know go to the visitor center at the um and in uh is it Chrissy Fields um yeah Chrissy Fields um at the uh um, Presidio, you can actually get uh, a brochure because there um, at the Presidio, they actually have like um, at the um, uh, Fort Point, there there are like these galleries where you can read about the Buffalo Soldiers. You can see some uh, artifacts and things like yeah. that um, from that particular period. Uh, it's, it's over there, you know, down there where you look up and you see the Golden Gate Bridge above your head. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I just wonder if you could, you know, talk a little bit more about about that whole idea of, you know, these, these black uh, soldiers um, sort of being stationed there in the Presidio. Um, I know there was a president that came through who had made some racist remarks, and so I guess it's sort of um, – I guess apologize but not apologize. He allowed the Buffalo soldiers to escort him, uh, like be the security when he came through. Yeah. I don't remember what president that was. And then, and then you know yeah. later on. Uh, so if you could Roosevelt. tell that story, yeah, Roosevelt. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But no, the Buffalo they came to the Presidio. Mm-hmm. These Colonel Young came to Presidio with the Ninth, coming from the Philippine Islands. They had fought in the Philippine insurrection from 1901 to 1902. And because of they did such an outstanding job in the Philippines, they were given 
duty at the San Francisco Presidio, which was considered to be choice duty at the time. And so from that standpoint, they have, they have history in San Francisco on down the coast to Sequoia, across the bay to Oakland. You know, Colonel Young married a, a sister from over here in Oakland, California. That's right, yep. Mm-hmm. So he has a connection to the Bay Area. And, and you know, it's really unfortunate that we have not been able to get the state of California to follow the lead and give him a state commission as general, such as what happened in Kentucky. You know, we have not asked for federal recognition for him as of yet, Mm -hmm. and we don't intend to ask for it through this administration. But to be able to get states where he served to recognize his importance and to Mm -hmm. grant state promotions for him, at the time we decide to go for the federal promotion, it would be a big plus to be able to say that the states that he served in, that he served with the Buffalo Soldiers, has recognized him from the standpoint of granting him the state promotion, like was given to him in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. So you've been on this on this mission for 40 years uh, yeah. around getting this recognition. And so you, you obviously, um, you know, sort of queried our own legislators here in, in California, and, and so it's been negative so far every time? Um, you, you know, unfortunately, we reached out to, at the time, our, our state senator, uh, Kamala Harris, and we reached yeah. out to her uh-huh. a year and a half ago, and we have yet to even hear from her office in regards to it. I, I really do think that most people don't put very much credence or importance in history, they feel that it's something in the past and it holds no contemporary value. But that is not true. It is certainly not true. We personally believe that it's important that all Americans are made aware of the fact that we have a joint vested interest in this country. We have a responsibility that we have upheld from day one. We have served in the defense of this nation when this nation wouldn't stand in defense of us. So it's important that that's included in American history. For many years, most people only thought that the only significant blacks that served in the military was the Tuskegee Airmen, which is so far from the truth. During the time of the Tuskegee Airmen was also the time of the first black tankers, the 761st tank battalion, who ran across Europe with George Patton. The first armored unit to reach the Ryan River, served 180 consecutive days in combat, suffered a casualty rate of 50%. They were not recognized for the merits of their contributions until 1978, when Clifford Alexander, the first black secretary of the Army, presented them with the presidential unit citation. You have many first. You have the Golden 13, the first black naval officers from the World War II era. You have the first black all-women's battalion, the 6888th Postal Battalion. You had black nurses that served in segregated units. You had black paratroopers, the Triple Nickel. There's a tremendous amount of history that lies 
from the colonial times up until the contemporary presence that most people are oblivious to. However, it's important. It's important in American history. It's important that the story is told. And our belief in that somewhat led to our bit of disappointment with the National Afro-American Museum in Washington, D.C. We felt that they did not do an adequate job of covering the history, in which I understand. There, there's so many different aspects of the history that they had to deal with. But we kind of believe that they missed the point in marginalizing the importance of our military contributions, because that is the cornerstone of our claim for civil rights, equal rights. And that began back with Frederick Douglass, when he called black men to arms during the Civil War, basically telling the brothers to come and pick up arms and strike a blow for their own freedom. So for that National Museum to marginalize the importance of our military history was a bit disappointing to many, many black veterans around this nation who really understand the true merits of the history. But we're hopeful that uh, we're going to give them a chance to make an amends for what they missed. (laughs) We're asking them if they would consider putting the statue of Colonel Young on horseback in front of that museum. Because after all, again, our civil rights is built on the contributions of the brothers and sisters that have served in the defense of this country. If you look at the history, every major concession that has been made from the standpoint of us, black people, has come about as a result of our service in a war or conflict. It's the concession that the country has made for our service. And we need to recognize that. We need to not let that be an afterthought, because it's a very, very important part of who we are and our advancement in this society. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I was um, was thinking um, when you were talking about um, you know uh, sort of getting um, someone in you know a legislator in California to um, <clears throat> to give um, um, then Colonel Young now Brigadier uh, General Young um, this this uh, this honor and so has been done in Kentucky, can it still happen in California? You, you know, yes, it can still happen in California. I think it will, it will not have the same significance that it had happening in Kentucky, because obviously mm-hmm. the colonel served in many different states, but he was only born in one. Okay, He was born in Kentucky. Right, right. So it was most mm-hmm. important that his home state recognized him. But at the same time, it, it can be done in different states where he has served. And Mm -hmm. a bit disappointed that it didn't happen in California first, since California is the home of this advocacy. It all began right here in California Mm -hmm. back in 1978, pushing for Colonel Young. And we're a bit disappointed that it couldn't have happened here in California as first to take the lead. But, But we're extremely grateful that it did happen in Kentucky. Mhm. Right, right. And um there are other things that are underway still, right, in Kentucky that you're um 
you're you're working on? Because yeah, I think we're, the uh, museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're working with the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage. They have mm-hmm. set aside a wing of their building. The building is about seventy thousand square feet, and they have set aside a wing which is going to be about fourteen thousand square feet to establish a media arts center named in honor of, it was going to be Colonel Charles Young, but it's going to be the General Charles Young Media Arts Center. And we're working with the institution to establish that that facility. We're currently working to try to raise $3.5 million to make that facility happen. And, you know, it'll give the center an opportunity to be able to broadcast to classrooms throughout the state of really beyond the state of Kentucky, they will be able to broadcast to classrooms around the country on subjects of black history. At the same time, use it as a training facility to train veterans and others that are interested in videography and, and film and production, to train them there to be able to uh, make them qualified for some of the jobs that the film crews are bringing into Louisville and Kentucky filming different programs. So we're extremely excited about that. And the city of Louisville is excited about it. So uh, we're looking forward to trying to get this done within the next couple of years. We're currently looking for a sole source sponsor that is willing to sponsor a project with the $3.5 million. And in turn, they will have the naming rights for the theater. We're going to put a theater inside the wing that will hold 200, seat 200 people. And whoever the donor is will have the naming rights for the theater. They can name the theater in honor of who, it, who they choose for the project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How we, do? We, um, we, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I just want to know how do, how do people um, support support you in you know raising the funds to be able to um, you know continue with this uh, um, this project. Well, well, what we're doing for for the um, for the Media Arts Center, mm-hmm. we're looking for one corporate, one sponsor for that. So we're not going to do okay. an individual fundraiser where we're asking the public. Okay. But for the statue project, we are asking right. the public to support that. Mm-hmm. You know, and anyone interested in supporting the effort, if they kindly send me an email to cnmmf at aol.com. We will send them out some information on how to uh, contribute to purchasing a challenge coin that features Colonel Young on horseback on a, on a, as a statue, recognizing all five branches of the military. We're asking the public if they would kindly make a contribution and buy one of those coins, and part of the proceeds will go towards helping to build a statue in Washington. But again, that email address is C-N-M-M-M-F at AOL, or you can go to Facebook at the Colonel Charles Young Memorial Tribute page. And there's information on the page about how you can get involved and help. Okay. Um, Yeah, if you can send me a link to your Facebook page, I can um, put a link in in today's show description so people could just click on it. Yeah. All right. yeah, so here in Oakland, uh, we were talking about um, 
uh, Ben Hazard, um, you know, wonderful um, scholar and wonderful artist, and and he actually, um, uh, besides designing the the flag for um, the county of Alameda, he did um, a number of of um, statues of the Buffalo Soldiers, and one is here in Oakland, right? I have not, to be honest, I have not seen the statue that Ben has done on the Buffalo okay, Soldiers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah, um I think it's in front of East Bay Mud if I'm not mistaken. But I haven't I, I did East Bay Mud on eleventh Street? Uh no, no. Um I think on Adeline. On Adeline? Yeah. You know I can't say you're wrong, but I can't say you're right. I'm not familiar with it and I would think if there was a statue of the Buffalo Soldiers down there. I honestly do believe that I've known something about it. You know. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Um, okay, well, I have to look for it. Let's see. You got the Buffalo Soldier Monument in 2011, uh, Tuskegee Airmen Monument in 2013, and the Navajo Code Talker Monument in 2016. And these are all in where New Mexico. Yeah, these are all the New Mexico Veterans Memorial Park in Albuquerque. But um oh oh no it's in the spirit and coming together sculptures so no it's not buffalo soldiers you're right uh it was in the spirit and coming together sculptures commissioned by the East Bay Municipal Utility District which is East Bay Mud so yes. yeah so we got to go to um New Mexico <laughs> for the buffalo soldier one yeah yeah so well, you um, know uh, hmm. but I don't know I I think there is a potential to be able to look at the possibilities of doing a statue here in the city of Oakland. I mean, especially when you take into account that the colonel's wife came from West Oakland, you know, Mm -hmm. and black soldiers spent a tremendous amount of time down on 7th Street, which was considered to be the Harlem of the West Coast. That Mm -hmm. was where all the black entertainment for the West Coast, for the Bay Area, was happening on 7th Street. And so it would be totally appropriate with the Blues Walk of Fame that's running down 7th Street in front of the BART station if there was a statue or something commemorating the black soldiers that once patronized the establishments in that area. Right. And that's something that, uh, you know, I'll get with Ronnie Stewart of the of the Blues Society and... Uh, talk about it to see if that's something that they would be willing to entertain working on with us. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. There should there and should I'll... be a there should be a statue or a monument someplace up here in the Bay Area. Oh, I think there should be one. I think there should be I think there should be one at the um at the Presidio because I agree with no you. one I spoke to knew that there were over 400 African American men you know, um, from that long ago, you know, the Buffalo Soldiers, that was a long time ago, there in the Presidio, like no one knew. And yes. and if they don't know because there's nothing, I mean, you know, there's like that one uh, one plaque, you know, which is kind of faded, um, you know, sort of honoring the sergeant who was a part of a group of men who rescued um, some white military that were, I think, I think they were... Yeah. Um, yeah, was it like was it Cuba? It was some kind of battle, and they rescued them because nobody else would rescue them. They couldn't even fight. You know, they they weren't even 
given any any arms, but they went and rescued these men, all of them, and you know I think they suffered uh, some injury from the from the uh, the gunshots, but nobody died or anything like that. Um, well, I know the twenty fourth. The twenty fourth was instrumental in Cuba with Teddy Roosevelt mm-hmm. and the Rough Riders. Uh, they were instrumentally involved in that, and there was a battle during World War Two where I think it was the Battle of Bastogne, where uh, yeah. the Americans were surrounded and mm-hmm. the black troops broke through to rescue them. Right. That's right. So, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of history, and one of the things that we have been trying to emphasize to black veterans around the country and to the black community, it is our responsibility to honor our own I caught a portion of the program that you had before I came on, and I totally agreed with the brother. We need to take the responsibility of honoring our own. We have black institutions around this country that are struggling to survive. About a year ago, the movie came out, Black Panther. Yeah. That movie must have it grossed a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. As many of us that went and paid $15 to see that movie need to take $7.50 and go visit the black museum in your community to help support their operation. The museums in Kentucky are working on reduced staff. Mm. The museum here in Oakland is under-resourced. Problem being, most people do not view culture as having, history as having any merit to it. But it does have a contemporary value. And what we're trying to do in Kentucky to help fortify the existence of the black institutions, we're working on trying to uh, promote the entire region as a tourist attraction based on the history and the life of Colonel Young and the black history that has taken place in that portion of the country in hopes of being able to increase the tourism, in hopes of being able to provide additional financial resources to the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage and to the National Afro-American Museum up in Wilberforce, who, Mm -hmm. to my understanding, is working on a reduced budget And these institutions cannot function properly unless they're funded properly, and it should be the responsibility of the black community to make sure that we spend some money to support those operations. It's our history. And if they disappear, the history is going to disappear. I tell veterans all the time, the way to preserve our history is to teach it to our kids. Us old-timers sitting around talking about the good old days or talking about the history from that standpoint, that's well and fine. However, the history needs to be taught to our children. The history needs to be included as a part of American history studies in public education. That's how the history lives. That's how you preserve Mm -hmm. the value of the past. That's how you tell the young people that are currently in uniform 
that there is some pride and recognition in what their forefathers and mothers has contributed to this nation. From a historical perspective, through our involvement in the military. As I said earlier, it took 147 years from the black Minutemen in the colonial days to the first black colonel in the United States Armed Forces. From that 147 years, it took another 68 years to have the first black commander-in-chief with the election of Barack Obama in 2008. That's history. There's history in between that. There's a lot of contributions that black soldiers, men and women, have made to this nation that lay dormant that most people are not aware of because it's been kind of cast aside as if it has no importance. It does have importance. And the biggest importance that it holds is the fact that it is the facts that document our equal entitlement to civil rights, to equal rights. We were not given civil rights basically because someone felt like being charitable and handed us something. We earned those rights. The rights were earned. It was earned through our military service. And we need to make sure that that story does not die, that our kids are aware of that history. And that's white and black kids need to be aware of that history. And hopefully if people understand that we have a common, a common vested interest, it may even help us have a little bit more respect for one another, I mean black and white around this nation, when we can all recognize that it has been a joint contribution. And the truth of the matter is, whether this boat sail or whether this boat sinks is going to depend on all of us recognizing that we're going to all have to do a little bit of paddling with this boy, okay? We're going to have to paddle the boat a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back to um, uh, the uh, Brigadier General's um, wife, who um, her name uh, was uh, is uh, Ada Mills, and, and they were married yeah. On February 18th, I just wanted to mention that it happened in February the 18th, which was last week, um, the 18th, in 1904 in Oakland, California. And they had two children, Charles Noel, born in 1906 in Ohio, and Marie uh, Aurelia, uh, born in 1909 when um, uh, Young and his family were stationed in the Philippines. Um, yeah. And and also I wanted to, to mention that, um, that he... He went to um, West Point, and and he was was he the fourth, the third, or fourth person um, uh, to third. attend the third? No, he okay. Was a black graduate. He, you know, uh, the first blacks attended West Point in 1870, and that was a brother by the name of uh, uh, his name keeps slipping my mind here. I know, it's Webster Smith. Is his last name? He was the first brother to, to to be led into West Point, but he was not the first to graduate. Matter of fact, he mm-hmm. never did graduate. first brother to graduate was Henry O. Flipper. And John right. Alexander followed Flipper, and Charles mm-hmm. Young followed Alexander. Mm-hmm. And right. Young graduated in 1889. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And then and then the story, you know, that it you know, the last one and you know, until um Benjamin O. Davis Junior <laughs> in nineteen thirty six, that's an interesting story, you know, about Benjamin O. Davis Senior, right? Um, you know, who um was uh who became Brigadier General, who was tutored <laughs> by young. Yes. Um yes. Yeah, yes. if we could pass that, that math test or something. <laughs> I was like, Oh, this is cute. Um yeah, just sort of like, um, you know, small world, but the world was really small when we're talking about, you know, these um, uh, African-American, um, uh, you know, military um, leaders, right? Um, well, they and all, how They were mm-hmm. restricted in where they could serve, so they all knew each other. Right, exactly, exactly. You know? Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. And then also... Um, you know the friendship that um that um uh general young had with uh, w.e.b. du bois i mean they were really good friends and then also just thinking about you know he was a teacher he was also a musician a composer he wrote plays he wrote poetry yep yep <laughs> and 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 you do too right cuz i think i saw a poem of yours um yeah i i write a little bit <laughs> Yeah. Colonel Colonel Young, I I call him a renaissance man, okay? I mean, I've had the opportunity to read one of his plays, uh, Tucson Overture, Mm. which I have, uh, I got a copy of it from the Ohio Afro-American Museum, and as a part of our efforts with the Kentucky Museum, with the Media and Arts Center, it's currently being reviewed as a possible as a possible thing that we we will try to work for a stage presentation later on, but this is years down the road, you know. Mm-hmm. But as far as his plays and uh, his poetry, he wrote some beautiful poetry. He really did. I, I've enjoyed reading a lot of his stuff. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he was a remarkable person for his era in history and what he went through the period in the service. I mean, he was a very, very strong, remarkable man. And he he certainly deserves, he deserved the star that was given to him on the 11th. And at the same time, he deserves his place in American history books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He yeah. deserves to be there, uh. along with the other men and women who have gone relatively unknown in terms of their deeds, in the defense of this nation. And that's Mm -hmm. one thing that we have been working on for a number of years now. You know, uh, when I got involved with this project, I had the honor of befriending a friend of Colonel Charles Young. Mm. He was the last, his name was Sergeant Samuel Waller. He was the last black survivor of the Spanish-American War in the state of California at the time. I met him when they brought him up to Yachtville. He was, I think at the time, he was 98 years old. He was blind, living alone in Los Angeles when the state stepped in and brought him up to Yachtville. And they made me aware that he was coming up, so I was part of the unofficial welcoming, welcoming committee for him. And he he became like a grandfather to me. And he was actually a friend of Colonel Young. 
And he told me, Sam told me before he died, he said, Son, they write you out of the future by writing you out of the past. Mm. Don't let them write us out. And little did I know at the time, Sam had gave me a job. <laughs> okay. That's been a job that I've pursued for the last 40 years, to try to make sure that those, those important things in our history is not excluded from what our kids learn about. Mhm. Huh, wow. I was wondering, um, do you have uh, a poem that you wrote, or a poem that, or something that um, the general wrote that you could share with us? Uh, I got. Uh, let me see. I got something that I wrote here that I attributed to the colonel. Okay. And it's it's called "What Shall I Tell Thee." Hmm. Hold on for one second here. Let me let me retrieve it, okay? Okay, sure. You know, the poem kind of uh, talks about the strength that was required from him hmm. to face the things that he had to face, but to continue to move on. And like everything else. Again, it's called it's called What Shall I Tell Thee? And I'm gonna open it. If I'd known you were gonna ask me to do this, I'd have had this out. <laughs> <laughs> here here it goes. It says If thou shall ever wonder how do ye muster the strength to face the unknown, I'll offer you this reply. When the wolves of life snap at your heels, deny their existence by not looking down. When the daggers of hardship are pointed at your back, keep your eyes to the heavens and refuse to look back. You may hear the sound of the phantom as it dwells outside your door. And the friends who once were many do not come around anymore. Keep the faith, the hardship will pass. You may hear the chuckle of the pretenders as they label you the fool, but pay them no mind. They did not make you what you are, nor can they deny you your destiny. They have yet to learn the biggest fools of all are those who cast the labels. They are the victims of their own generalizations. Keep the faith the burden is theirs to bear. So I say to you, give your best in spite of the test to your dreams vow to be true. And knowing your soul, the faith that you hold, is the strength that will carry you through. Your will is built by your courage. So face the unknown with a sigh. It matters not whether you succeed or fail. What counts is the fact that you try. Keep the faith. That's the end of that. Oh, keep the faith. Wow. (laughs) Why shall I tell thee? That's beautiful. Keep the faith. Nice. It's about I can totally hear. I can totally hear him saying something like that. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's about it's about being able to keep the faith, and and that's what we have demonstrated. I would think over the last forty mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. in pursuit of a title for this man. Mm-hmm. I mean. <laughs> 
talking with one of my council people yesterday. We were kind of talking about it, and he had asked me, well, what did it mean to me? What did it really demonstrate to me? How did I feel about it? Mm -hmm. Like I told him, in my opinion, the true honor goes to Governor Bashir, who is the man that we have looked for for 40 years, okay? We have looked Mm -hmm. for the man to give the colonel this honor for 40 years. We found him in the new governor of Kentucky. But from the standpoint of what it means to us, to me, to me it's a demonstration of my faith that that was going to happen one day. And it was the perseverance to keep pushing. I mean, there's many doors that was closed on us in our pursuit. I mean, in all honesty, there were some people that didn't even want to talk to us because they felt that it was something that would never happen and it was meaningless. Mm-hmm. But in spite of that, we kept on working at it. So, And I feel good about that. I feel good about the demonstration of our faith through our persistency to not give up because it didn't happen overnight. And we mm-hmm. do intend to build a statue in Washington, D.C., and to open that media arts center in Louisville. That's going to happen also. Can't tell you exactly what day it's going to happen, but I can tell you it's going to happen, both. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and so how do you how do you stay um you know, committed um to, you know, to the the goals that, you know, you've set or that you've been assigned? I mean, 40 years is a long time, right? Um, yeah, 20 years but, is a but long you time. Know, right, right doesn't change. I mean, it was right 40 years ago, and nothing has changed about that. Right doesn't change. It was, it was, it's just as right today as it was 40 years ago. So how do you walk away from something that you know is the right thing to do to pick up something else that you may not have a clue? What you're doing? I mean, you know, this this is the right. This has been the right thing for us to do. And in my mind, it's been absolutely no doubt whatsoever that it was going to happen. Now I know others have doubted it, and and I don't blame them. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, forty years is a long time. Yeah. But you know, it's even a longer time for those of us that have worked on it every day for forty years. So when it happened on the eleventh. It was a sigh of relief for me, personally, but it also meant that it's time to move on to the next stage of what we got to do. Right. And that's what we're doing. We're moving on with the statue project. We've asked the Congressional Black Caucus to give us their blessings on our pursuit of the site for the statue at the National Museum, and we're waiting, waiting for response from them. And we're hoping that by June, when we do plan to be in Washington, D.C., we're currently planning a program to take place at the Colonel's grave site in Arlington. And at that particular mm. point in time, we're going to try to meet with the Smithsonian and the National Park and the Department of Interior to talk about the possibilities of us giving of them giving us authority to put that statue on their grounds. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, I was just thinking. We'll keep the public. We'll keep the public informed about how it goes. 
Okay, yeah. I was thinking also about, you know, um, the governor, um, Bashir, you know, just last year, you know, he restored um, uh, the voting rights um, and and the right to hold public office to 140 people, 40,000 people um, who had nonviolent, you know, um, had committed nonviolent offenses and, and, you know, but couldn't vote. And and so you know what he did around you know honoring uh, this military hero, you know Brigadier General um, uh, Charles Young was sort of in keeping you know with his uh, his political vision. So I walked away from the meeting with him and his wife, mm-hmm. feeling as if I've uh, had the opportunity to meet maybe a future president of the United States. Mm-hmm. I think that eight years, if he serves eight years as governor of Kentucky, and if his sensitivities remain as clear as the sensitivities that he has displayed to us, I would not be surprised one day if he ends up being a candidate for the White House. Mm-hmm. Very impressive. Yeah. Very impressive man. Very impressive family. Mm-hmm. And as I was telling some of my people yesterday, we've looked for this man for 40 years, so he is one in a million. Okay? Mm-hmm. He's one in a million. We have thirst for him for 40 years. And I do believe that the act that he took in promoting the, the colonel to general is an act that's going to carry dividends to him in his future political career down the road. Hmm. Mm-hmm. He took a step when nobody else would. He took the step. And to me, that's leadership. And above all, it's Definitely. a man that has conscience to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Any... Um any concluding thoughts around um, around you know, sort of the work of of your organization? You know, pushing for this statue um, being uh, erected on the grounds of the uh, uh, the National Black Museum, um, African American African American Museum. Um, you know, the last. It's really amazing. You know how it was. The last parcel, you know, on on that particular location. Like there is no, there were, there was was no more. Uh, there's no room for any other building, and it took a hundred years for it to happen. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. You know, uh, we really think that the statue would be fitting. That would be the most fitting place for the statue, and at the same time, there's other concerns that also lead us in that direction. You know, we've done a site survey of various locations in the district that could accommodate a statue. And every last one of the spots come with some degree of contention. I mean, we aren't the only group that's looking for a spot of land for a statue, you know. So every spot is, there's contention on every spot of land there. And the process going through the District of Columbia, it can be a process that takes a decade. We feel in going to the National Museum to do it, 
we can avoid that lengthy wait for one. And for number two, there is no better cause or no better project to to have a statue on those grounds than a statue of Colonel Young recognizing black military history from that era for the men that serve that have not been adequately adequately recognized. The black veterans from World War One are probably the least recognized black veterans in American history. Reason being, because most that fought served under the French. They didn't fight under the Americans, they fought under the French government. Hmm. A lot of people don't realize that. I mean, up until, what, 20 years ago, there was no black Medal of Honor recipient from World War I. And we raised enough hell about that as to where I think somebody finally heard us, and Freddie Stover was promoted, given, given the Medal of Honor. And he's been followed by, uh, I think it's Robert Johnson, who mm-hmm. was given the Medal of Honor also. I mean, Robert Johnson, I don't know why they left out Neham Roberts, who was with him, when he distinguished himself. But the b- veterans during World War I were the least recognized in American history. Before those Medal of Honors was given 20 or 30 years ago, the highest decorated black soldiers from World War I were decorated with French medals. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. still question to this day, I have, we have asked years ago to see that some of the records. We wanted to see the records of uh, Colonel Young and some of the other mm-hmm. blacks that served during that era. And we were told that there was a fire in the, in the archives in St. Louis back in 1973. And unfortunately, the records of most of the black soldiers that we would ask to review, they tell us all of them were destroyed. So we'll mm-hmm. never know what was in those military records. And I still to this day doubt very seriously if those records was adequate since, in fact, most of the men served under the French. They didn't serve under the U.S. military command. Mm -hmm. So how do you keep an accurate record of these men's entitlement when, in fact, you are not the recording source of the deeds that they commit? Mm -hmm. And I guess it's something that we'll never know because they said the records were all destroyed. So we'll never get Mm -hmm. a chance to see that. But I... I still carry that suspicion. Yeah, but what about... That the records are really blank records, okay? But what about, um, you know, the French um, government? They have their records, right? Or no? I went to Paris and visited the National Museum of Paris, and Mm -hmm. they did have some information that they made available to us. And I also went and visited the Imperial War Museum in London. I went and did a research project there for about two weeks. They have a very extensive collection on black military history. Mm -hmm. I asked them how did they acquire it. An interesting story. They said when the war concluded, the United States government was going to destroy the records. 
because they didn't want to bring those records back to the United States. Now, I went through a lot of the photographs and all. Some of the pictures that was in their collection, on the back of those mm-hmm. pictures is stamped, not to be shown in the United States. Oh, my. That was because back during the time of World War II, when segregation was still a big thing in this country. Right. They were blocking. They didn't want any information that really showed that we were making a valuable contribution to the effort. Because by downplaying the merits of the contribution, it also downplays your claim of entitlement. So many of those records, things were stamped not to be shown in the United States. They gave the stuff to the British, and instead of the British destroying it, the British archived it in the Imperial War Museum. And I went and spent spent almost two weeks going through their collection, very extensive collection. As a matter of fact, I would say it's probably on the same par as what we have in our own National Archives in Washington, D.C., which I've also went through. Mm-hmm. You know, at one time we were talking about trying to, uh, and which we still would like to do, like to bring bring some of those photographs back to the United States and put them on exhibit possibly send them around the country mm-hmm. as an exhibition nice. so the public can see some of the stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. But um, it's the history is out there. The history is available. I mean, there's, there's history in the uh, National Museum in the Philippines. I've been in touch with them, and they've been trying to encourage me to come to Manila to take a look. They've oh. done a preliminary check for me and told me it would uh-huh. be worth my while to come and visit which mm-hmm. I hope to get around to doing at some point in time. Oh, this but is it's, great. Yeah, it's it's a it's a lot of it's a lot of information that's available and we're trying mm-hmm. to bring it all in to the point as to where the public can be knowledgeable about the history itself. And we can kind of put it some places to where people can come to a central source for the information. Mm-hmm. You know, many years ago, old-timers was telling me about what they had accomplished in history in World War II. Now, at the time, I was fresh out of Vietnam. A friend of mine, William Lewis, came and got me involved, and we started a veterans project here in the city of Oakland. It was called the Black Veterans Organization. We were located up on 98th and East 14th Street, and it was kind of a gathering place for vets, and a lot of the World War II vets used to come in, and they'd sit around, and they'd tell us stories about their military days. And obviously it was stories that we had never, we'd never heard about in school. Mm-hmm. So I kept saying, well, how come this information is not available to any place, and so on and so forth. And so I went and met with Marilyn L. Wilson and told Mara, I said, you know, we need to have a national military museum. And wouldn't it be nice if we could locate it here in Oakland and make it an annex to the Smithsonian Institute? Mm-hmm. And he told me, he said, well, Charles, that's a good idea. When you need my help, come back and see me. <laughs> I was trying <laughs> to give him a project, and he gave it back to me, okay? <laughs> so we <laughs> We've been working. We've been working ever since. I mean, we're no longer trying to build a museum. I mean, obviously, we have museums, 
we are mm-hmm. constantly pushing to try to get the public to support what we got. Let's support right. the museum in Ohio. Let's support the museum. Let's support the museum that's down in Houston. Let's support the museum that's in Kentucky. And let's support the museum that's out in San Francisco and the one that's over here in Oakland. Mm-hmm. And I think if we, as a community, if we adequately support these institutions, there might be additional resources that could be made available to help them to do a much more thorough or expansive job in the documenting and the telling of the history itself. Mm-hmm. But that's a long-term thing. But that's that's something that we're we're working on every day, trying to build public awareness about the importance of the subject and to try to gather support for the existing institutions that are currently working on displaying our history. Mm-hmm. Do, does your organization have a website? Uh, no, no. We have Facebook, mm-hmm. Facebook mm-hmm. and email okay. address, no web. Okay, okay, yeah. And um, your phone keeps on ringing, so I know you're, we're, we're you know, we went longer than, than you had planned. But I wanted to ask you, um, I guess um, you were drafted um, into to military service, or did you volunteer? I volunteered. Oh, you did? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, why is that? You know, back during the time, back during Vietnam, I come from a family as to where I can honestly... I could I could trace 25 members of my family that has gone through the armed forces. Oh wow! We were the only house on the block in Rockford, Illinois, that had a flagpole in the front yard that flew a flag. Okay. Mhm. And I knew I was destined to be drafted. And I'd always had a thing about the Navy. I wanted to ride a boat. I wanted to see the other side of the world. So taking into account that I was 18 years old and knowing that I was in line to be drafted, I chose to volunteer, and I volunteered for the Navy. Mm-hmm. I served four years, four years there, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm on, I'm, I'm on my second duty now. I, when I came out the Navy, my second duty is this project. I've been on, I've been on my second duty for the last 40, 40 41 years. Right. <laughs> you know, I realize, and, and I know we've been on a long time here talking, but long story short, mm-hmm. I was in Vietnam when Dr. King was killed, when Dr. King was assassinated. Right. They did not tell us about the assassination until we left the combat zone, until we left the line. Hmm. When the captain came across the MC microphone and uh informed us that Dr. King had been assassinated. Quite a few of our white shipmates began cheering and clapping. They did? Yeah, they did. They did. We had a we had a mini riot on the boat that evening. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening, the military decided to not make it public. Which there there was racial issues that happened in the military during the sixties that were not made public because of the mm-hmm. fact it was hid it was kept from the public like we were told 
Nobody was disciplined for what happened, but everybody was warned if it happened again, the book was going to get thrown at you. But at the same time, it made the handful of black soldiers, sailors that was on that boat, it made all of us have to stop and think, you know. Mm-hmm. The people we over here bombing didn't do nothing to us. And here's a brother at home trying to help gain equal rights for our, our people, and these folks are cheering because he was assassinated. I mean, it, it was a troubled time to try to get through, and to come through it, many of us came through with the resolution that at the end of our service, we were determined to do something to address the historical inequity of what's taught about our history and to try to give some public value to our service. I think it's important that every I think it's important to everyone to be able to give meaning to their own history. And this project is an exercise in giving meaning to our history in regards to our military service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for this really wonderful conversation. We've been, you know, planning to have it for a while, and uh, and so this is this is just continue. We're going to have other conversations, um, but uh, it was really great to be able to talk about, you know, um, you know this this monumental um, accomplishment, you know, in the work that you and your organization have been, you know, trying to get to happen. You know, for so long, and uh, yeah, and then you know, when when you read about um, the Rickadera generals, um, uh, how hard it was for him to get through West Point, you know, and the reason why others hadn't gotten through, they didn't roll, and then it just it was just so cold and so um, unsupportive and so um, hostile. That you know, how can you study? How can you learn? How can you eat? <laughs> you know, how can you think in a place that everybody around you says, "Oh, we don't want you here. You're here, but we don't want you here, right?" And and then when you read you read his writing, and he says it was like, "Oh man, you know, he wouldn't wish that on his worst enemy." What he experienced at West Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it it was a test of it was a test of individual perseverance. That was for Flipper, for Alexander, that was for Young, and it was also for B.O. Davis, Jr., who graduated and went in in 36. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it hadn't gotten any better. Yeah. No, went through the same thing. I mean, go through four years where no one said a social word to you. Mm -hmm. It it was a real test, and it took special individuals to be able to – to survive going through those types of situations. Colonel Young, all, Colonel Young, Henry Flipper, John Alexander, they're all very special individuals, and they should have a greater place of recognition in our history. Mm-hmm. And we're working on it. We're working on it. We're going to try to make it happen. We're going to do the part that we can do. And at right. some point we'll be able to pass this on to somebody else to pick it up because, you know, all of us are getting up in age a bit. But our goal is to take it as far as we can while we're healthy and able to make a contribution. So when we're when we're about ready to give up the baton, they, we can give up give up the baton with people having a little bit of road in front of them to run. You know, 
Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But I, well, again, I, thank know, you so much. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you taking time and your um, determination in making this happen. I appreciate that. And I look forward <laughs> to, uh, yeah, once we get a little bit further along with the statue and some of these other things that we're working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And then, you know, maybe we could, you know, get a bus or something and, you know, take some people to um, – uh, the National Museum for African American uh, History, you know, for the inauguration of the statue, or take some folks to the media center, you know, when that happens, and you know, well, yeah, I'm gonna hold just, you to that. I'm gonna hold you to that. Okay. Okay. Well, you're gonna help. You're gonna help me, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No problem. You can hold me to it. Yeah. Totally. I'm gonna hold you. Mm-hmm. I'll help you. Okay. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. I would. Yeah, I would love to do that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because, <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we didn't even talk about, you know, um, you know Colonel um, Allen Allensworth, you know, who with some other yes. folks, you know, founded a town, and and then, you know, that just was just too much. So then what did they do? They killed the man. Well, they said it was an accident. Um, and then, yeah. you know, brought t- stopped the train from running through, cut off the water first. Like, you can't have a town with no water, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just craziness. Like, what? What? You know, yeah. you mentioned Allensworth. <laughs> I, I was down at Allensworth when they dedicated the opening. Ah. Uh, myself and uh, the boxer, Archie Moore and Maureen mm-hmm. Reagan, were yeah. down as the guests for the opening ceremony mm-hmm. down there. It's a fascinating place. I haven't been down there now in years. Because, mm-hmm. God, that was, boy, that was back when they had first remodeled some of the renovated a couple of the houses. The whole project hadn't even been completed. When oh, they it's had so the nice. Yeah, it's very nice. I mean, you can't live there because, you know, um, there's no water. Um, there's no water. And, well, yeah, all of the, yeah, it, it doesn't support a, a town anymore. Everyone yeah. lives outside of the town. and But at least, you know, they got rid of those cattle farms that were, Threatening, you know, the national park, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but yeah, it's really beautiful, and you know, they have their annual um, jubilee kind of things. You know, the one in Juneteenth, and and there's another mm-hmm. one. They're like two big gathering days, and there's a Friends of Allensworth, and um, and people can go online and look for that and look at the calendar. So yeah, it's really beautiful, and I think I think there's a train that stops not too far from it on yeah. on, on those days of the of the the events. It's not every, it doesn't stop there all the time, but on those event days, there's a special stop so you don't have to drive if you don't want to. So yeah, that's nice. Yeah. If you're coming from L.A. or coming from, you know, Northern California, you could take the train. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I, I that's might, really great. I might get a chance to stop by there this weekend. I'm heading down to Los Angeles tomorrow and uh, okay, driving well, down with yeah. my grandson, and we might we might stop through there. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, well, safe travels, and again, thanks so much for this wonderful conversation and your great work. Um, yeah, I'm glad you told me about um, your sort of uh, what happened, you know, on the ship when um, you, that was like, wow. But a friend of mine who was a sergeant um, and in the Vietnam War, he talked about how he would um, he would make sure that you know the men that was in his or were in his command. You know that they read they read Jet magazine so they could be 
familiar with what's happening in the black community, and that they always referred to the Vietnamese as people, that, you know, they yeah. might be at war, but they were killing people. <laughs> you know, they were fighting a war yeah. against other people that had just a, just the same amount of right to live as we do, as yes. opposed to, like, dehumanizing them like, you know, folks are sometimes taught. Well, no, we, uh, the brothers that I served with, we had a healthy respect for the fact that they were people. We, and, mm-hmm. you know, and we, we, we held to each other real strong to be able to be mm-hmm. each other's strength because it was some very trying times. I mean, to, to mm-hmm. know that you're someplace else fighting somebody for something that you may not really even understand what you're fighting for, and yet mm-hmm. your own people at home, fighting for the right to vote or the right, right to sit down exactly. for one. I mean, you know, that's, mm-hmm. I, I don't think the public has really stopped to understand psychologically what would go on mm-hmm. in a person's head. I mean, the same as our young soldiers today of Hispanic heritage. These kids mm-hmm. are around doing various things, and they're running the risk of their parents being deported. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. with nobody having any consideration whatsoever for the psychological turmoil that that creates mm-hmm. for the person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're gonna get shut off in two minutes. Got it. <laughs> so I, so I want to let you know the that before the. <laughs> All right. You take good care. Until next time. <laughs> Until next time. Take it easy. Bye bye. You too. Bye. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us for another edition of Wanda's Picks. See you uh, on Sunday at the Black Joy Parade. Or maybe at um, the opening performances at uh, Safe House Arts uh, for Black Choreographers Festival here now, Natalia Schultz's piece, uh, Saturday and Sunday. And you can visit the website there. Oh, I can still talk. Oh, my goodness. I was going to play something, uh, a poem or something, or something from Brother Malcolm, but I don't have, I'm like, I only have one minute.